It's my favorite part of every superhero movie. It's the origin story, and everybody has one. Welcome to Pinecone Turkey's The Origin Story Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Henry Harris, and it's my privilege to interview superheroes from all walks of life to find out how they got from A to B, to see where they might be going next, and how we all can learn from their journey. Hello, everyone. I am indeed Michael Henry Harris. And this is another edition of the Origin Story Podcast. Before we get to this month's superhero, I do have a couple of announcements. One, if you are looking for the process edition of the Origin Story Podcast, we'll be getting one to you very soon. For those that don't know, the process episodes follow me as I trudge along writing and Will Haraway of the Sundogs and the Haraway Brothers as he writes new songs. It's a lot of fun, and if you're interested in the artistic process of either one of those two mediums, then you will probably like it. I also want to let you know about the Flock email. It is Pinecone Turkey's official email. It happens twice a month. The first email contains your minimum monthly dose of art. That'll be a short film, a short story, some poetry, and visual art, all curated by me. And the second email on the round the 15th of the month will discuss everything new in Pinecone Turkey's land, including our podcasts and future guests. So I encourage you to sign up for that to stay abreast of everything Pinecone Turkey. Our superhero this month is Martin Kelly. Martin Kelly graduated from Georgia Tech and soon after started two independent record labels and worked as a music journalist. He began working in the indie film arena as the music supervisor for the award-winning film The Unreliable Narrator. Soon after writing his first screenplay, he co-founded and became co-president of the Atlanta Screenwriters Group, which is one of the largest screenwriter organizations in the Southeast. Uh, ASG has grown from five members to well over 500 participants over the years and has cemented itself as one of the most respected film education organizations. Uh, his directing debut was on the short film Buoyant, which was selected for the annual Atlanta Film and Video Festival. He then went on to direct the HD feature Behind the Nine from a script that he co-wrote. That film was released on home video through Echelon Entertainment. He co-wrote and directed the Cougars film group short film Trust Beam, which earned the Audience Award at the Atlanta 48-Hour Film Festival. Another Cougars film he produced, Spleen, was an official selection of the Atlanta Film Festival, and yet another short film he co-wrote and co-produced, Overblown, won Best Film and Best Script at a subsequent Atlanta 48-Hour Film Project. Martin became one of the founders and editor-in-chief of an online magazine called Cinema ATL, which focuses on filmmaking in the Southeast. Martin continued to write screenplays, including Loaded Dice for Shoreline Entertainment, Vicious for MTI Home Entertainment, as well as winning screenwriting awards like the Atlanta Film Festival's Perfect Pitch Award for his script, Jen. I continued to produce independent projects like the feature documentary Beat Makers, which was released by Nelson Madison Films, and he co-wrote the short film Soup, which selected to screen at film festivals as well as the short films The Unbearable Rightness of Diversity and Short Time. The former was selected to screen once again at the Atlanta Film Festival, and it joined six of his short films that have appeared on the PBS show Atlanta Shorts, as well as Comcast On Demand. Most recently, his producing, writing, and directing efforts have been on short films The Ticket, Tainted Blood, and Dead Justice. They've all seen awards and film festival selections. His script, Immigration Tango, was shot in Miami and won Best Picture at the Boston International Film Festival, and was theatrically released by Roadside Attractions slash Lionsgate. He wrote and produced the feature film Step Off, which was released by Lionsgate, as well as Black Cats, which was released by Amazon. His new feature, Beauty and the Beholder, is available on Amazon Prime and iTunes starting October 8th. 
and his faith-based movie titled Full Count will be released on On Demand and in select theaters nationwide on October 25th, so right around the corner. Also look out for a thriller titled Reckoning uh, that will be released in early 2020. So, as you can tell from that bio, Martin has got the bona fides for independent filmmaking. He's the guy around town who people call when they're stuck. Be it writing, producing, maybe they need help with crew, maybe they need to be put in touch with someone. He's the guy you can go to for advice and guidance, and I say this not just from theoretical knowledge, but personally, when I was stuck on a short film project that I was working on and needed help, he's who I called and said, let's go get dinner. He makes things very clear, he has experience, he's extremely bright, and he's very kind, and he's in, I would say... Uh, the arts business for the right reasons. I mean, I mean, I guess there are, yeah, I think there are right reasons and wrong reasons to be involved in it. He has no illusions about uh, fame or stardom. That's not why he's doing it. I'm sure that would be a fine if he achieved those things, but what he's really about is telling stories and community. And that's really what I wanted to talk to him about. And we discussed that thoroughly, I believe. I really like his philosophy and attitude, and I think it's one that uh, I need to adopt more and probably other people do as well. However, we also do nitty-gritty kind of uh, analysis and talk about the process of what it's like to be a filmmaker and a writer. So if you have uh, people who are interested in possibly doing that in their life, this would be a good one to listen to. There's practical advice as well as uh, more philosophical advice. Um, so Martin's a friend. Uh, I respect him tremendously. It was a really great time sitting down and talking to him. And, uh, I certainly look forward to doing a round two some point, uh, cause this guy is creating a ton of work and he's doing it the right way. And it's going to be fun to see what he continues to do. All right. Without further ado, here's Martin Kelly. Martin Kelly. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, how you doing, man? I'm fine. I'm fine. A lot of stuff going on, but uh, keep keeping it all together and trying to trying to move forward and and, and do well. All right, there we go. I like that. Uh, so I was doing a little bit of research for this, okay. and I was looking at your IMDb page, which is ridiculously extensive. <laughs> it's got you. You are listed as actor, producer, writer, director, AD. You have a camera and electric spot and a sound. Oh yeah, as well credit yep. as well. Yep, true. Uh, some of these I've seen or been a part of, but uh, so with all those options, and somebody asks you, you know, what do you do in the film industry? What do you say? Uh, I usually say writer and producer mostly, because um, most of you know my whole career was trying to be a writer. Uh, how I'm even doing this is I was trying to be a writer, uh, so I, I was successful at being a screenwriter. But then that has led me into uh, being hired a lot as a producer these days. So. Um, you know, I just taught myself how to make movies. Uh, obviously, you know, we have common friends who, who helped in that journey. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been, you know, I don't, I don't, I hate that it's like the actor. I have, I have technically a lot of actor credits. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) So that's like the thing that pops up, but, (laughs) but I was like, I wish it would just, the writer and and producer credits would pop up first, but, but, uh, I don't mind actor. I used to, I used to audition all the time. 
to get on sets so I could learn what was going on. So I would audition for like, you know, you you get the the with the audition note notice right, and there's right, right, right. there's a like little breakdown. eight roles right breakdown. I, I always take whatever the eighth role was. I, I would audition <laughs> I for that because I didn't want the lead because I know I'm not a lead actor. I'm not a leading man. Yeah, but I me neither. I knew I could do some supporting roles and, and hold my own a little bit and and. Uh, I just liked to do that. I liked to get on the set and see how other people were doing their thing, too. Yeah, so. that's that's pretty great advice, I would imagine, for anybody who wants to be a part of this thing is get on there somehow, right? Right. If you want to, you know, I think crew is, is a lot better even, but it's it's sometimes harder to get on a crew because you got to know people. You know, to get on real quality productions, you really got to know people and get recommended to be on a crew. Right. Uh, so that was my way is to, like, I'll just audition. You know, and, and, and jump on somebody's set like that. And then sometimes I would do a little role and then help them with the crew stuff too. You know, yeah. just just to just to say, Hey, I'm I'm willing to do this too and, and so learn a little bit from from the rest of the crew. Make yourself useful and keep your eyes open and right. ears open and listen that's, and that's that was the, the goal. So that's why I have so many act acting credits. And I do like to act. So I do I don't mind taking a cameo every now and then like in, in some of our own productions. Right. I'll take a small cameo. Like I, I play one of the DJs in uh, Step Off, you know, which was fun for me. Sweet. Uh, and uh I think I, I play when I got cut out of Black Hats because uh, I was like a sound tech okay. <laughs> in, one of, in one of the scenes. And uh, at one point, I was in it because they cut back to see what was going on. There was a problem in, in, uh, in the movie with uh, the CEO's uh, presentation, you know, the, yep. the Steve Jobs-esque uh, uh, CEO presentation. And I was the tech guy in the, in the control booth saying I didn't know what was going on. But, uh, yeah. that, got, but that got cut. Saying so. it wasn't quite integral to the story necessarily. <laughs> no, it didn't. They, uh, it didn't. And then I got to do like a little little small part in Beauty and the Beholder recently, so that was that was kind of cool too. Uh, what were you in that? I don't remember you. I was the in interviewer. That. There, there was a part of that is about uh, 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 plastic surgery, and they do psych evals for plastic surgery. Uh, and part of the psych eval, somebody will just interview one of the um, you know the would be uh, patients, and and so I was the one doing the questioning. Okay, very uh, very cool. So, yeah. I must I must have just. Looked away for a minute during that. Well, you, during that section. It's, it's mostly behind my back that you're just focusing on 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 uh, Arabella's part of that scene. But uh, but it was fun doing that. Gotcha. Uh, so there's a million different ways we could go with this conversation, and I and I've debated it amongst myself uh, how to do it. So I think we're just going to kind of go random. I want to sure. talk first of all, though, like you know, where'd you grow up? Oh well, that's I'm an army brat. So I grew up. I was born East Point, East okay. Point, uh, South Fulton Hospital. Uh, I lived in East Point and uh, Jonesboro and, you know, all around Atlanta uh, while I was really young, uh, till I was about five years old. My dad had been a Vietnam vet. He got out. Uh, okay. And then he met my mom. They, they worked at the FBI uh, in Atlanta, in the Atlanta office. Uh, they got married, had me. Was he an agent? Or they, were they no, agents? No, no, he was not they? an agent. They were in administrative roles uh, there. Um, then... Um, he had been out of the army for like seven years. I was only five uh, at the time, and then he reenlisted. Started from scratch. No kidding. Yeah, he started, and he looked. The bad part is like it's six years you could retain some of your rank. So he had been a staff sergeant in Vietnam. <laughs> got out. Got out. Was gone seven years. Uh, so that was one year too late. So he started from private again. 
All right, well, we've got to spend a little bit of time here. <laughs> uh, that's extraordinary. So, do you? Do you um, how old were you when he re-enlisted? So he re he got back in the army. Um, I was five years old. Okay, uh, five and a half probably, well, almost six probably. But so he got back in the army, and then then I started my world tour. So <laughs> so we went to Germany two different times. Uh, once when I was seven years old uh, until I was about ten. Okay. From there, I went to New Jersey, uh, Fort Dix, where my dad was a drill sergeant, uh, and that was fun. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I loved New Jersey, uh, and that's the first time I got to go to the Army Navy game. We, I went with the cadets. With oh, the, sweet! With, not, not they weren't the cadets. They were the <laughs> they were the grunts. The you know the, the basic training uh, guys. Right. Um, we went to. Uh, uh, it was cold as hell. It was so cold. Uh, to the Army Navy game, it was awesome. But uh, then I went to Germany again, and so started uh, my la- my latter days of um, middle school, and then first couple of years of high school in Germany. And so that point, uh, first time I was in Germany, we were in north in like the industrial area, like Frankfurt, uh, not in Frankfurt, but south of Frankfurt. Okay. And then the second time we were in Bavaria, so we were south of Munich. So that was really beautiful. Uh, countryside and, and, and had a lot of mm, those were formative years well, what is that like what was that like uh, growing up on a base or in a foreign country well you know I, I loved it actually uh, the more you, like a lot of people don't like the army life uh, as a brat like army brat when you're you're a kid and you got to move every three years and, and you know you lose all your friends and, and you know have to start brand new but I really dug it actually I mean not so much losing I hated, I hated leaving my friends whenever I had to leave but I did I didn't mind starting new. And then in Germany especially, it's a really unique sort of situation where there's a bunch of, you know, the army itself is very diverse, right? Um, where where I was, you know, in Atlanta or South Georgia at Fort Stewart, you know, it can be diverse, but most times it's not, right? right. But when you're on a military base in Germany during the Cold War, you gotta be, you gotta be together. And so that diverse community is a really tight knit community, and so I think that really informed sort of my my uh, my worldview. You know, it's just being with a diverse group of people, and you know, knowing that we were all on the same team, and just you know, knowing we were all equal. I mean, we were all <laughs> this army brats. You know what I mean? And, right. and and we were all isolated from from you know America, and and you know, and living in a, in a different world. And so that really strengthened our bonds together. So most of my, you know earlier friends were the were the army friends you know what i mean that, yeah. that we were tight with you know uh, so your dad was a drill sergeant at one point so yes. that you know throws to mind many many stereotypes and sure you know uh, so what was that like what's what was he how was he as a parent he's he's a he's, he's a great parent he's very soft in terms of the in, the internal workings of the family, but he also was my youth sports coach, and so he was a drill sergeant again <laughs> for that, which is a is also great. It's all it's also great in retrospect. <laughs> like when you're there and you, and you know and you get treated, you're the example, right? Completely. Uh, so you know he's h- hardest on me, just so that nobody thinks there's any favoritism going on, right? Completely. So right. I get the. You know, when I'm the littlest guy on the team, uh, let's say for football, and you know, <laughs> yeah. and we got a drill, like an Oklahoma drill or a one-on-one drill, uh, I get matched with the, the biggest guy on the team, and, and I'm expected to go no, all out. No right? favorites here, exactly. And so I would do that, and I, you know, it. 
I w- it was great because, you know, it taught me to go hard, you know, and he, and he taught me a lot of, you know, obviously great, great values that I, that I hold on to to this day. And it's kind of, again, sports also inform my worldview. You know, I, I think of everything as sort of uh, a team sport, you know, especially like even in, in filmmaking, you know, like when we when we get together, uh, you know, a production crew, I mean, it's, that's like putting together our team, you know what I mean? And, 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 you know, I feel like the coach in a lot of ways and, and just try to inspire that team to, to victory, you know, and every day is a victory if we make the day, right? Oh, completely. I think like producing is, that's all, I mean, those are great, easily applicable lessons. Yeah. So, you know, I, again, uh, that's the other thing is, so my dad was a tough, but fair drill sergeant. His troops really liked him. And, you know, he always was helping his, you know, my dad, grow, growing up, I always noticed how he helped other people. Like, even in Germany, like when he wasn't a drill sergeant, he went to Germany, he was the chief of staff at the NCO Academy. Oh, wow. Uh, which was, you know, uh, again, we were in Bavaria, uh, and he was, a, you know, the chief of staff at the NCO Academy, and, and then he was always giving people, like, especially like Christmas time, like some of the younger troops who have going through a tough time or whatever, he was always helping them, you know, and, and I always saw that and felt like, that's the kind of person you need to be. You know what I mean? So that yeah. was that was always good. But you know, he could be he could be tough. You know, he could be tough when he needed to be, but it was always done out of love, even with the troops. You know what I mean? Even with the people under him who he was their boss and don't F with them, you yeah. know what I mean? But they knew he had their back too. And so I always, you know, appreciated that and respected that. What did uh what did you think you wanted to be at this point? In, Originally in I was gonna be an astronaut. I really, well, that's when I was great. I really thought I would. I thought, you know, because I was fascinated with space. You know, yeah, military was, all around. Yeah, exactly. So was, I, I really thought, you know, I I might get into astronaut program. You know, I, I really thought about that, and that was kind of the the idea when I was a really little kid. Okay. But then I kind of, you know, I kind of got into writing. You know, even even early on, I started. I, I discovered um, I discovered D and D, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh yeah. And uh, my friend Christian Kelty, who's an artist to this day, is a playwright uh, down in Orlando with um, what's the the Fringe, like the Fringe Festival. He's always doing something there. I don't know. You, yeah, you, no, you no, maybe no. I mean, Orlando Shakes it. is the one I know down there. That's that's but, a good theater. But, but he, you know, he was the first writer I ever knew, right? Because he would write short stories and okay. stuff. Okay. Uh, and then we played D and D together all the time, and and what we started to do was create our own adventures, right? And so we basically write the scenarios, right? It's kind of like copying because we would create like a Planet of the Apes adventure, you know? Yeah. So it's based on, you know, the Planet of the Apes world, but we would have to write, you know, write the content. But you're learning, that. you're learning story structure. Exactly. You know? you know, that's built in. And so I started that. And then, then after that phase, after the Dungeons and Dragons phase, I, I discovered hip hop. And uh, when I discovered hip hop, I started writing rhymes, you know, and then writing rhymes and writing songs. That was my next phase of, of wanting to be a writer. So what, uh, who was out there? What rappers were you listening to? Like, who were you, who were you learning from and imitating? Well, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't really progress much cause I wasn't imitating anybody early. Okay. But my, the person who grabbed my attention the most when I first started getting into hip-hop it was because of planet rock it was it was i I had already liked r&b i was a big r&b guy uh and this is back when i was in uh, new jersey so i was listening to philly radio stations and if i could catch it a new york radio station if it would come in so i loved r&b ray parker jr and radio and cool and the gang and you know that you know the gap band that whole thing you know um they that was already 
you know, something that I was resonating with. Hip hop was a little bit, you know, obviously there wasn't much of it on the radio for sure. Um, but what solidified it was Planet Rock and not the version, like if people understand that the song Planet Rock, there's two versions. There's the vocal version, which has got some rapping on it, but the Soul Sonic Force, they do their thing. But the one that got the most play was the instrumental. And strictly, it's just the badass beat. It's ridiculously good beat. It holds up to, to this day. I don't know it. Could you, can uh, you, oh, I I'll, mean, without putting you on the spot, can you do a little bit of it? Or do, would well, you? Well, I can't do the beat, really. Okay, okay. It goes, but it goes, so maybe you can do it. <laughs> it was just, it's, it's well, heavily inspired by craft work. So, you know, but this got this really hard beat to it. And it's, it was so much reminding me of like sci-fi, right? This was perfect sci-fi music. Right. So it hooked me. But the rapping part, when I heard Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, The Message. Have you ever heard that song? Yeah, that's, that's what, I, that was what I associate as the first sure. you know, real one to... And that, to make it to most folks. Well, or maybe they had already had like Robert's Delight. Robert's Delight was like a novelty hit at the time. Okay. But the serious rap group that signed to that same record label, Sugar Hill Records, was uh, Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five. Now, Grandmaster Flash is a tremendous pioneering DJ, and he was the, na- you know, the name behind the group, right? The Furious Five, though, had Melly Mel. And Melly Mel, he ended that song... And it was the most gripping sort of verse I had ever heard. It was so passionate and so, like, just fascinating, you know? And I was like, God, this is amazing. You yeah. know what I mean? Because I had heard some raps, and it was like, oh, these, these people are talking instead of singing. You know, that's all I really associated with. But when he, you know, ended the message, his final verse on the message, it was like, this is outrageous. This is so good. And so that's when I got into hip-hop. And so then I started writing rhymes, but I didn't imitate anybody. And I did, so when I started to imitate people, I got a little better. And then I imitated LL Cool J because LL Cool J is one of the best. And, you know, a lot of people think of LL Cool J as like an actor these days and a host. But he was a fantastic rapper and, and a badass. This seems like a good time to, to let everybody know that there will be show notes for this episode. <laughs> so I can look up these people he's just mentioned. Uh, I'm just kidding. I know some of them. Uh, LL Cool J was actually one of my, my very first concert was Houdini, LL Cool J, and uh, Fishbone. Nice. Wow. That's yeah. a crazy lineup. Right? That's a crazy lineup. I, I met uh, Houdini before. Really? Yeah. Uh, I used to go uh, back when I came back from Germany, uh, and I settled down in um, Georgia again, South Georgia, Fort Stewart. Uh, Savannah would have the, the hip-hop shows, and I would go and sneak in, basically, uh, I would wear my, my fisherman hat, and people thought I was Mike D from the Beastie Boys. <laughs> so I'd get backstage, and I'd get to meet everybody. You'd so get backstage because they were I just literally... Walk, well, was... I'd go early. You know, I'd go early in the yeah. day, and uh, I'd just walk back there, and doors are open because people are loading in and everything else. i just walk back there and, and, and hang around. And so I met a lot of people. Houdini's one of them, uh, Ice-T and Donald D from, from Rhyme Syndicate and that, that whole crew, and uh, even Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff at that time in uh, Public Enemy. Uh, those guys, I met all of them, you know, while I was in high school, you know, going to those shows. But yeah, that's amazing. So, uh, who or what is Reign of Terror? Well, that is uh, the, the hip hop group that I uh, was part of uh, out of high school um, with my current producing partner Eddie Singleton. Uh, he is the lead MC in that group, and then my other uh, good friend uh, Sam Abramson. He is the 
at the time, we called him the DJ, uh, but he was actually making the music. He was making original music, which was a little different at the time. And so we, we, uh, he was our, our, our producer slash you know, beat maker, uh, which people would call it these days. But uh, at the time, we called him the DJ, even though he was making the music. And I technically was a DJ slash rapper, but I would, only, I would only do a little bit. I would only do a few verses because Eddie is just such a strong MC, and he's, he's ridiculous. So I have an image in my head of how like a like a high school rock and roll band what they do and what they get together. Mm-hmm. What is what do you do with a with a hip hop group? It's the same thing. We would we would uh, practice in my garage. Uh, my my parents uh, would let us like take over the garage. Um, so we would make you know make the music together. You know uh, give some suggestions. Sam you know did all the real composing and, and you know and putting putting it all together as a track. Uh, we would practice the rhymes. I would actually do a little bit of DJing. So I would practice my because I was a I was a DJ in Germany uh, before coming coming back to the states. But so I would do a little bit of cutting and scratching, you know, to try and you know put some flavor on the record or whatever. But then uh, Eddie was the main MC, and we just practice and rehearse and um, get our songs together. And eventually, um, you know, we did some some shows. We did some like a little bit of touring with uh, like on Ice-T's Power Tour, we did a little bit. Did, did the, uh, at that time, Hammer was not a big thing. We, we, we saw Hammer grow. So like really? we started with, we started opening for Hammer and outshining Hammer. <laughs> and three months later of constant radio play, Hammer became, he moved up on the bill. So he, was, we, he, he wasn't the one uh, that we would play right in front of anymore. He moved up the bill, and then you know someone else we were playing in front of. But uh, they loved his. Obviously, they loved his dancing a lot. And but his records just got huge. But during that time, we were we were on those type of tours. So Rob Bass, uh, Kid and Play, uh, Ice T. Um, and your parents are just say go for it, or well, what I mean, are they? This, by this time, uh, this is like. Are you still in high school or no? Just graduated. So okay. like the summer of graduation is when we started our tours. We had, you know, during high school, we were making our making our stuff, making our, um, you know, demos and whatnot and uh, sending them out. And we got the attention of a promoter, uh, a concert promoter, who put us on these shows. In the okay. South. So um, we really thought we were going to get a record deal. And there was a couple close calls at that time, you know, at that time when we were doing it. Uh, didn't, didn't ever pan out, you know. Uh, so we ended up. Obviously, a lot later we started putting out our own records, but but at the time we you know we were trying to get signed at you know back when record companies would sign artists <laughs> you know right it's, it's a good such old days. A different with sound like like people hearing this or who are young probably don't know what the heck I'm talking about about getting signed because that doesn't happen anymore yeah so what did so what did you learn from all that process like looking back on it now I, I think you know I think the one thing that I learned. Is that I'm a pretty stubborn guy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm not really gonna stop until I find something else I'd rather do. And so that really didn't, that really never happened until I sort of transitioned into movies and and, and trying to go into the movie world. So did the stubbornness, which I think is a, a, an amazingly awesome uh, quality to have in in an artistic pursuit, you know, maybe not interpersonal relationships, but yeah. but did 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 this show up? Uh, in other things before this as well, or is this where you kind of realized, like, oh, I'm just good. no, I'm just going to keep doing this until I die or I make it? Right. Or- well, I think I think it's not. I think most people see stubbornness as sort of a bad trait, right? 
and I, I think it's a bad trait in some cases. Like some, sometimes I think people are too stubborn for their own good in certain situations. But when you're trying to pursue, if you really have a passion for something, then you need to be stubborn because it's not, nothing happens. Well, that's not to say that. Some things happen overnight, but not really. Yeah, rarely. You know, it's very rare. Like I think someone, I just saw a post today on social media about Kevin Hart's overnight success, which took him 19 years. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? That's just because when we finally hear about somebody, it doesn't mean they have been toiling away for right. forever. Exactly. And so I figured, you know, I just put, you know, my two cents together saying, you know, if I don't stop, then there's a chance, right? If I stop, there won't be, you know? And so, you know, I mean, that is so, to me, that's just, that's wisdom. That's, that's really straight up, like, the attitude you almost have to have, I think. It doesn't make it hurt any less that it's, that it takes so long, right? right. It's, it's really tough. It's tough. And I understand why people quit. Like, you know, uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about the Atlanta Screenwriters Group at some point. And, and I've seen hundreds, hundreds of aspiring writers come through the Atlanta Screenwriters Group, and most of them stop. Yeah, you know, and and so uh, I'm just a person who didn't stop, and I'm just wired differently where I'm not going to stop. It's part of like what what my dad instilled into me on the football field is like, you know, you keep going, you keep going, and yeah. you'll make it. And then one of the greatest phrases, you know, that I go to all the time and I share it is is from him, as far as I know. He might have gotten it from somebody <laughs> yeah. else, but he always said, when you see a man at the top of a mountain, you know he didn't fall there. And that means you have to work. You have to climb. Yeah. So there's no getting to the top of a mountain without the climb. And so I've always, you know, used that as inspiration, and I'm always just try to climb. I think that was in Genesis. I think. Really? No, no. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's a great. That's a great quote. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought with my beautiful one-liner there. Um, so, did you know was it, you were always going to go to college, or were you going to see if this panned out? Or no, I I, I, I had to go to college. It was that, okay. was, that was the deal. <laughs> it was you know my my um my dad was that set on me going to college. Uh, my parents they both wanted me to go to college because they wanted me to you know do well in life you know and that's that's a good thing. And so I decided yeah I'm gonna do it. I'll do it. So how did you pick tech? Um, it was the best school <laughs> that I was accepted to. It's <laughs> a good way to do it. But uh, yeah, I had I, I had a part of it is sort of a, a, again on a stubborn angle. My dad has two brothers. Um, well, actually not anymore. But uh, he he had two brothers who were way older than him. He his youngest his youngest brother was like seventeen years older than him, and then his other older oldest brother was like twenty years old. Oh wow, that's so he was interesting. And they all had. They all had kids, you know, you know, ahead of my dad, and so all his, all the sons of the oldest um, went to Georgia. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I, I think my dad secretly wanted me to be different and 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 do something different. So um, I, I did, you know, I was interested in Atlanta too. I mean, Atlanta's a city because I, you know, I'd always considered it my hometown, and so mm. I felt like, you know, let's. Let's go back to school here. It's a great school. Again, I still didn't rule out being an astronaut, so I came in as as wanting to be an aerospace engineer. Oh wow! <laughs> you know, so that was still on my radar, uh, and I, you know, I'd done well enough to to get into, into tech. So uh, I applied to tech. I planned to apply to Georgia, but I got my acceptance fast for some reason. And I was like, yeah, hey, I remember. I think we're about the same age. I think, but I remember tech was one of the first where you could like fax in an application. 
Wait, yeah. and that and they just you know turned them around like you know they, they were they incredibly were efficient. engineering no. efficient way. They <laughs> were very efficient, and so I never actually applied for Georgia. You know, I did apply for for like two other schools that I didn't get into, but they were they were really stretch stretch schools because I had a little bit of an advantage being in Georgia at the time. So right, um, you know, Georgia Tech is a great school. Very hard to get into for people who don't live in Georgia. But if you live in Georgia and you do reasonably well and you're, you know, you score reasonably well on your, you know, tests and whatnot, then you have a good chance if that's what you want to do. So how did you like? How was your tech experience? Did um, yeah, tech is tech is another like another. It's good for stubborn people because like most people leave Georgia Tech. Like most people, and they they. I remember orientation. Um, they sit you down. And they say, look to your left, look to your right. You know. They're probably not going to be here, you know, in a year, right? And they were right. They were only about 25% of the incoming freshmen finish Georgia Tech. So uh, they were absolutely right because the people I came into that that orientation with, most of them left. <laughs> yeah, most of them left. And they were not – it's not like they're not tough. You know what I mean? It's sure. not – they just knew that they didn't want to work as hard. <laughs> it was not easy. Georgia Tech doesn't give you anything. Yeah. Georgia Tech is – is uh, not a friendly school in that regard, or at least in my experience back in those days. You right. know? And so, but again, it's a challenge to me. You know, I really did, I really struggled. My first year at Tech, I wasn't able to try out for baseball because my grades were too low. I, I didn't qualify. I couldn't try. Oh, wow. Out, uh, because that's how low my grades were, where I, you know, I had barely touched a book my last two years of high school, right? I'd barely touched a book and I was top of the class, right? And I get to tech, and it's hard. It's really hard. I'm sure. And so, I my my grades fell a little bit, a little bit below where I needed to be. I couldn't try out for baseball. I couldn't do any any of that stuff. Uh, but I was like, you know, you're not going to beat me, Georgia Tech. Was was not making baseball? Was that a big was that a big blow? Were you was that something you'd planned on doing? Or again, I was fairly decent pitcher. I was a fairly decent pitcher, and um, I had actually. Uh, friend of the family who um was a catcher in the minor leagues for boston red sox he he worked with me a little bit and thought i should try out and thought i'd right. be okay um i never got to be to the elite speed so i probably would not have actually been able to be a pitcher uh but i was i was i was okay you know yeah. i thought it was a chance that i might be able to you know walk on the team you know at some point again that wasn't the best place to try and walk on, though, because Georgia Tech had a pretty good baseball program at the time, too. But I didn't even get a chance to try out because I had to concentrate on the school. Right. So it kind of that went away. But at one point, I had hoped maybe to, you know, to, to be a, a college baseball player. Yeah. Did uh, Eddie go to Tech as well? Or were, no, Eddie, Eddie and I met in high school. Uh, he, he lived in Midway. Uh, he, dedicated, he dedicated himself to Reign of Terror and to the and him and him and Sam, they were both really pursuing it hard. And I would come in. I, I would actually, you know, you know, my trips home would be home to the studio to you know join them and and, and you know figure out what we were going to do. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't. They they were not wanting to go to college at the time. They were just dedicated to it, and you know they put in a lot of hard work on it and perfected. Like Sam perfected his craft in terms of a musicianship, and then Eddie perfected his craft as being a rapper, you know. And he, and they, they were really good, and they just were dedicated to it. And so, but I had to go to tech. So, 
So I went to tech, and so we worked on it that way, you know. And I would, like I said, I would frequently go back and and, and join them and, and work on everything. And y'all released things, right? Didn't you? Did you start yeah, a label, right? Or well, we did. This or, was a little bit later. Uh, so like a couple in a couple years in, in college, we're just doing some tours and trying to get signed. And so for the first maybe two two years of college. Uh, three years probably. We we went that route. We made. What demos. does that entail? Trying to get signed. What do you do? Well, it used to be what you do is you make demo tapes, which people don't even have tapes anymore. <laughs> but demo tapes you would make and you would send them to labels and or you know try and get them to in the hands of people who could have access to record companies at the time and and you would try to do it or you'd personally audition at times. Like uh, Jack the Rapper was a big music convention that used to happen in Atlanta, and sometimes they would have showcases where. You might get discovered by an A and R or something like that. A and R is like the people who would sign, you know, artists like, uh, you know, Wu Tang Clan, you know, got signed by an A and R. Right. Uh, like uh, Pearl Jam, an A and R found them and made the case to the record label that you need to sign these guys. And so that's what you were trying to find. You were trying to find those people and impress them. And so it's just a difficult process. We had a couple of record deals on the table. They were very minor and and we were a little too smart for our own good at times so we we were, we were questioning contract this and you know con, you know and like is this really worth it that any any, uh, any regret there like do you kind yes. of wonder what would have happened i totally think you know i totally think that we should have signed one of the deals um just because it would have got us going you know what i mean we could have we could have figured out how to get out of a bad deal you know, later, you know, or the the deal may have not amounted to anything and we could have just done our own thing later. But I really wish we could have done it earlier because we took a long time to decide to put out our own music. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Which we should have gotten to earlier. So if we could have signed and had a failed experience with a record label, then we would have moved on to that point much earlier. Right. And like so fail faster so you yeah, can exactly. iterate. <laughs> and, it's to- and it's the thing I would say to people is like, go for it. Go for it. If you fail, fine. That means <laughs> right. you tried and and it didn't work. Now what are you going to do next, right? Yeah. Because if you're not dead, you can keep going. You know, and that's the thing. And so, I wish we would have done that, taken that opportunity. We would have learned a lot more about the business that way. You know, earlier instead of when we finally started our own record label. You know, we were still new right because we never investigated how that would work right if we were signed we would know how it how it worked you know earlier on yeah when did um when did writing for for the screen when did that kind of become i feel i don't know if it's a a trading places kind of environment like to where okay I'm, i'm the music gradually fades away and the writing and film gradually you know fades in or or what what's the process with that with your well, here's here's the thing. I've always loved movies. I've always loved writing. And part of part of my transition was I, I wrote for uh, the school paper at Georgia Tech. I did music reviews. I did concert reviews. I did a, l- a little bit of movie review stuff and a couple of other type of articles, you know. So I did that. I did music journalism for hip hop magazines. So I would cover the Atlanta scene for different hip hop uh, publications. So how does that happen? Uh, I just asked to do it. You know what I mean? I. I got, you know, I really got to where I wanted to be at that point. You know, I was doing music. I loved music so much that I wanted to be a music journalist too, right? So I knew other acts around that I wanted to expose, you know what I mean? And um, 
I just said, hey, you know, there was this particular magazine that, that would do reports from other areas. I'm like, why don't you do one from Atlanta? I'll do it. You know, and then just they said, okay, fine. And so I would submit them articles and they would publish them, you know, and, and that's just how that worked. You know what I mean? And then while I was doing this, uh, I met a gentleman named Richard Etchison. Uh, I had just graduated college. Uh, okay. Uh, I was working at a hotel. Uh, Richard Etchison was working at a hotel. Uh, we happened to be working at the same hotel, and uh, we were on the night shift together. And so, what was, what was your degree? What let's go, I just what, it's not important, but what was your degree? And I'm just like, how did you uh, wind up at a hotel? Well, from tech engineering. It was actually I I switched in the middle because of all this pursuit of music. I changed my mind uh, on engineering, right? Right. And I pursued management. Okay. So I got a bachelor's degree in management. Okay. At the same time, I was pursuing an international affairs degree as well, but I was staying in school too long, so I kind of stopped short of getting a double degree. understand. But, but yeah, so I had a management degree. Now, working at a hotel, you don't need a management degree. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I wasn't looking for that career yet, right? So I was just needing a job. Because yeah. we, by this time, we had started a record label, and we had a little office in town, and so I had to have a night job <laughs> you know, to, to, to deal with it. You know, and so that's where I end up getting. Uh, in fact, the person who worked at the hotel before me was my partner in the in the record label, Barry Winkler, right? And Barry Winkler worked at the hotel, and um, so he got you. And he got, got you me a job. the job, and then that I met Rich at that job, and so Rich fascinated me because he was a playwright and an aspiring screenwriter at the time, and I was like, man, I always love, I always like movies. How do you do that, right? And so. Um, I would tell him about the music stuff. And so he was fascinated with the music stuff that we were doing, and I was fascinated with, you know, the writing he was doing. And so uh, we just got to be, you know, good friends and talking about our pursuits. And uh, I tried to encourage him to just do his own thing and make a movie, and so he did. And so at the same time, he taught me sort of screenplay structure. You know, he said, this is basically, this is this is what you do, you know, uh, format wise and blah 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 and so I wrote a script and I gave it to him and he said you know it, it's a story <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like is that good he's like yeah that's good. that's good so he didn't didn't you know discourage me at all he didn't so, say you're an idiot for doing this <laughs> right. you'll never make it right so I kept going but my first film work was on Richard's film uh, unreliable narrator. Okay. And uh, I convinced them that we should do the soundtrack. And so we did. So uh, the hip hop band did a jazz soundtrack for Unreliable Narrator. So what uh, So what year is this? When does this occur? This is like 1996. Okay. So 96, uh, I mean, obviously, we, we took a while before any of that happened, but we had talked about it for a while. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and he said, I'm going to do it. And I was like, do it, do it. Well, you know, and I, I'll help you with the soundtrack. And uh, so basically, uh, he, did, he did the film. Uh, I worked uh, as a supporting actor, uh, as a grip or sound, sound helper, you know, at times, whatever it was. Eddie was, came up to work on the film, too. Okay. Because Eddie was, Eddie was independently deciding he was going to be a screenwriter. Oh, I mean, really? In fact, Eddie said in an article once while we were touring some like because columbus newspaper uh columbus georgia ledger inquirer baby they came out did a story on reign of terror 
And part of the, the question... I hope I can find that. They're always... Uh, I, I think I can find it for you. It's, I'll, I'll look for it. But one of the questions is always like, what do you see yourself in five years, right? Eddie's like, I'm going to be making movies. <laughs> You're like, what? What? <laughs> News to me. We're, not- <laughs> we're, we're going to be... We're going to be doing tours. We're going to be having gold records, Eddie. What are you talking about? But Eddie was like, no, no, we're not. No, we're going to be making movies. movies. By five years, we're going to be done with that. We're going to be so successful that I'm going to be making movies. That's right. So I was like, okay, fine. And he taught himself screenwriting on his own. So he bought the Sid Field book and, you know, did his thing. And then I was up here hearing that Eddie's writing screenplays. I'm thinking, like, maybe I should try. And that's when I, you know, that's when I was, was asking rich for a little help and how to how to do it and so that's how that happened and then of course rich made his first movie and i was fascinated with the movie making process too and so that's part of once we did that crewing we actually um sought other opportunities so you know we uh, rich knew some people who were doing another movie we helped them with that movie and it so just kept going tell me what it what it is about that process that you liked that made you want to do it again i think it's i love movies so much that I wanted to know it's, it's like you and same with music it's the same with music it's like you love it so much you want to see how it's done you want to know you got to know how it works right and so the writing part is kind of you get it okay I get it you know you write it and, and it happens but how does it happen and I was so fascinated with just everything that went into making a movie and, and just I, I had the patience for it a lot of people don't a lot of people don't like sets because sets are are challenging. I mean, sets is challenging work, especially in when you're doing independent movies and you're a not getting paid most of the time, or b you're just sitting around feeling like you're doing nothing, right? Right. But not for me. That's it's just fascinating, and and the and the the familial sort of the familial bond you get was again it harkened back to the days of being an army brat in Germany and everybody's like together like. On one thing, it's like now we're now we're in the states and everybody's like us, except nobody's like us because here we are making a movie, right? And yeah. It's just something about it, something about those bonds that that really fascinates them. There's a there's a joy and there's a process and there's something that happens to you when a group of people is working together on a difficult assignment, right? Yeah, and, and it just it's an amazing bonding it, thing it, and it helps. It's, yeah, and some people some people don't quite feel that way, but I always did, and so that's what fascinated me, and then I. I figured how i gotta do more of this i gotta well, do a little more of this what movies were you watching growing up that that you said you've always loved cinema or always film mm-hmm. or whatever so do you what what comes to mind when you sit when you think about that well obviously star where did you wars. get hooked i mean star star wars um, you know everybody's big thing right but even even stuff like like fox and the hound you know what i mean like even stuff like that is animated but it, it was fascinating how how much that movie could move you, you know what I mean? If yeah. you're a little kid, you know, it's, like, it's it's strange. And then um, I don't know. I, uh, I started liking uh, foreign films, you know, uh, Spanish movies, Almodovar. Mm. Uh, then uh, then I got into uh, Zhang Yimou, uh Chinese films, which you know, and John Wu, of course. I mean, John Wu. When I was watching in college, I'm like God, this, this is amazing. Yeah. You know? And so, like, Hard Boiled was ridiculous. Such a good movie. And just those kind of movies really fascinated me. And then I never, you know, until 
about college. I didn't. I never really thought of it as something that was accessible either. You know, that's another thing. Why, you know, music became accessible enough because I bought a, I bought myself a drum machine, right? And I could make beats, so I could make music. Boom! Right? There, I'm making music. Right. But movies still, you know, until I got into college, there's no way that it was accessible. You know, there's no way. But I started making some shows at, for tech television when I was in college too. Oh wow! So um, that was interesting. I got to write a little bit, and then. Uh, I got to do like a music show too, so I got to edit a little bit. I mean, that was early, early stuff, but not real movies yet. Until, until you know, until we did right. But you rich. were, you were, you were dipping a toe into that world, and mm-hmm. the water was nice and warm, and you were enjoying it. I wanted to do more. It was so fun. Yeah, I mean, everything about it fascinated me. So, so when does the Atlanta Screenwriters Group come into play? When so shortly after uh, we did Rich's film, about a year later, maybe. Uh, this is the unreliable narrator. Unreliable narrator. Um, I was roommates with Rich, and um, then then I wasn't, and then I was. He moved on, did his own thing, but we, you know, we were still friends. He had written a new script, uh, and he wanted to have it read by some actors, and so I, by this time I had already written a second script, you know. And um, he said, you know, why don't you know why don't you uh, bring yours too, and then we'll do we'll read both, right? And so he invited a bunch of actor friends over, uh, read his script. Um, and the, 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 just the roundtable read of that was like, wow, this is really cool. Then, then we read mine. I was like, gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. This is so amazing. During that same time, I was looking at uh, news groups. If you remember news groups, like, I don't. What is that? Like alt dot uh, writing dot screenplays or like okay. rec dot. Uh, music. I don't hit. think I ever figured out how to do that kind of stuff. Well, news groups were kind of big for a little while, and it basically just like a bulletin board, but with different topics, right? So I was in the screenplay bulletin board. I think it was rec dot writing dot screenplays, right? Uh, people from all over the world posting stuff, and then uh, one of the things was uh, screenwriting groups, right? Like who belongs to screenwriting group? And some people talked about what they were, and I was like, hmm, this is interesting. I said, anybody in Atlanta? You know, and I posted that, and two people um, answered it. There was two people in Atlanta who were on the same board. Uh, one happened to be Michael Freeman, and one of them was Brett Burkholder. And these two guys said, yeah, we should start our own screenwriting group. We're like, yeah, let's do it. So we met in the Highlands. I don't know which bar. I don't know if it was Hand in Hand or something. Yeah. Some, some bar in the Highlands where we decided to meet. I brought uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Derek Bauman, <clears throat> and Mike brought – a buddy of his, Dave Carr, and those five people sat down at the bar, and we said, "How do we do a stream, screenwriting group?" That's amazing. So y'all met on this chat board, and a chat y'all... board. We said where to meet, and let's do it. And then I brought one friend, uh, Mike brought one friend, and, and and Brett was there, and so the five of us said, "Let's figure out how to do it." So tell me, going into that meeting, like, were you uh, what were you feeling? Were you nervous? Or were you excited? Were you? Well, I was excited both? to meet other screenwriters. Like, I mean, it was like I knew I knew Rich obviously, but I didn't know anybody else, you know, who was pursuing it, you know. And so it was it, it was going to be exciting to meet other people who were trying to write, you know. Yeah. And so that was exciting. And then the idea of the screenwriting group to help each other was a great idea to me. And then so one of the first things I said is like, what we could do is 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 readings. I said, we should do readings. I just had one. <laughs> it's it was just a great experience. <laughs> yeah. and, and so everybody's like, yeah, that's cool. And then I used my kind of uh, knowledge of Georgia Tech to secure us a uh, meeting space, right? Because the student center, I had been the night manager at the student center for years while I was at Tech. So I knew the 
the building in and out and knew we could, oh, there's always a free room. So I went to the, uh, you know, to start the group and we started very small. Uh, five of us expanded to maybe eight or nine uh, and people started telling each other about it. Uh, and then we started doing those table reads. We started doing those reads and then giving feedback. So how did you figure out what kind of what kind of group you wanted? What was the what were the, going to be the guiding principles? What kind of how were you going to handle feedback? Like, well, for a while it was a free for all, and it was basically the idea was just well intentioned. Like let's let's you know critique each other's work and make ourselves better, right? Uh, the the main rule, the only rule was don't tell them how to change the story, tell them how to improve the story, right? That was the main thing. It was like. Anything's fair game, but as long as you're not trying to tell somebody that they should write something different. They wanted to write this script, and so let's help them write this script. And so that was that was the guiding principle. Now, later on, we developed a lot more structure to our feedback because the, the, the group started small, and it grew. And at one point, I mean, sometimes we would have 50 people at a meeting reading a script and trying to give – Trying to have 50 people give feedback is really difficult. So, Sounds like a nightmare, actually. Yeah, yeah. so we had to come up with a little bit better way of, of structuring the feedback. You know? but, but it's always been the principle of we're not trying, we're not trying to tell you to write how, what you should write. We're trying to help you write what you want to write. Right. So that's the main thing we've always had. So what was your first script about? My very first script? Yeah. It was about a uh, high school kid who uh, was on a basketball team. Uh, it was called Ladders. Uh, and he and his best friend get caught up in a, um, a shootout, a drug shootout, inadvertently, in tragic circumstances. So uh, it's about that dynamic. And the twist of it is like the, um, there's a white kid and a black kid. And the twist of it is the white kid's dad was a cop who was actually a dirty cop dealing the drugs. And so the reason uh, the the person's friend gets killed it's because of the dad gotcha so it's like sins of the father type of thing yeah so that that was my first script it was like very hip hoppy you know very like it's all about hip hop because they were not only basketball players he was a DJ of course and you know so it was a, yeah it was in that world that you knew which exactly. was what you're supposed to do exactly so that was starting that off. was the first first story I, I told yeah uh, so the Atlanta script writers group screenwriters group sorry mm-hmm. <clears throat> still going on yes um this is a this is a this is a question from our from our mutual friend Rich, by the way. Uh, so, how have the young screenwriters' attitudes changed in the twenty years that you've been doing these ASG meetings? You know, it's funny, or has it? I don't know that it's changed much, but what I'll say is, I think, I think we've had, I think we have levels of seriousness in writing, right? And it's hard; it goes through phases. I think sometimes we have a lot of serious writers as part of the group. Uh, at one point, we had people like Rich, Robert Lee, you know, Nathan Flood. I mean, a lot of really serious, uh, you know, people who are really st- striving to become really great writers. And they valued the group and the feedback so much. Whereas, and we always had it, but whereas sometimes you go through a phase where people just want validation. And they just want you to, and we always clap at the end anyway, of, you know, because it's a great thing finishing a screenplay. That's a hard thing, you know. So we always you know, value the effort. But when we start being critical, and they really shut down, and they don't, they don't like it. And, and, like, they don't understand. That's the gold. That's the gold. Right. That's, 
Yeah. And I didn't either. Early on, and you know, when I when I brought one of my early scripts, early days of ASG, I was so frustrated with what everyone was saying, but they were absolutely right. They were absolutely right. And I finally figured that out that I needed to to address it. And so I think just we go through phases. There are, there's a little bit of a sense of entitlement that you've got a script and everyone should just praise your script. And maybe that's a little more prevalent these days than it used to be, but we've always had it. Because trust me, early days we've had people like that too. They would come their first meeting, bring their script, uh, we'd give them feedback and you'd never see them again because they were mad. You know, they, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to really improve. They just wanted to be validated. Yeah, or they, they realized that, oh, this shit's hard and I'm well, I, you know maybe I'm gonna go do something else but, I never but, get that know. sense that they think that it's okay. too hard for them I get the sense that they think that we they don't can know manage. what we're talking about <laughs> that's outstanding <laughs> that's just my take on it yeah so when did you when did you think that hey okay I don't suck at this oh I'd never think that I honestly honestly I still struggle with whether I'm doing anything that's worthwhile or not honestly but I I felt like I felt like uh, my second script, the one that that, um, that uh, Rich and I had the table read before ASG even, um, I felt like it was much better than the first one, much better. Um, that one actually, a friend of mine went to LA, um, you know, good friend Cam Cannon, he actually loved that script and, and tried, I mean, he tried valiantly to get it made. And he tried, he tried to bring it, to, he got a job with a production company and, and seriously tried to get it going you know and get it in development there and so when that was happening i was like you know i don't it's not just me that likes it other people like this so it must be decent enough you know and so that was the part that that got me thinking i might not be too bad at this okay yeah but i never think i'm always trying to be better i'm always i wish i was better than i am now just because i think there's people who write so much better than me that I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, well, and well of, of, of course there are. <laughs> and, and I was like, man, am I ever going to catch up? But, you know, it's not about catching up. It's about doing whatever your best work is and, and trying to, you know, just tell stories. Right. So when did, when did you first start to see a little bit more success on the writing side? Um, again, it's kind of, uh, I, I started um, pursuing writing assignments, uh, and I would get them. <laughs> <laughs> so how does one do that? What does that What does that mean for those who who don't know? And then how 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 do you do that? Well, in in Hollywood, you do it by having an agent and getting meetings, right? <clears throat> yeah, but we're this is the, yeah this is <laughs> actually that'd be great. You know, as long as we go along and we're talking about it, because uh-huh. we're you know we're talking about mainly the independent film world sure, for absolutely. us. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you could keep kind of giving people both views sure. of what happens, that would be really helpful, I think. To so people. the traditional traditional way people get writing assignments, and in fact. You know, and I tell this to all like young screenwriters because I speak at, at universities now these days because uh, they they think of me as some somewhat of an expert, which I don't I don't I don't mind them thinking that, but you know, <laughs> it's just funny to me. But I do enjoy telling young students, you know, my experiences and what I think would help them. Most writing, most writers who get paid don't get paid by their original script. That that beautiful script that you that you've always wanted to write. That script is never going to pay you, ever. <laughs> That's just true. What you get paid as a working screenwriter is when you get an assignment, when you get hired to write something. So that, that original script that's your baby, that ends up being like almost like your resume, your calling card, Absolutely. right? That like becomes your people like it. it. It proves that you can write, you know, and that's, what, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, so to get an assignment, though, it means someone thinks you can write 
and they, they have an idea that they're going to pay you to write. So in Hollywood, that happens when you go to meetings with production companies who have properties who need screenwriters, and your agent gets you a meeting. And you, you meet with them, and you tell them how good you're going to write their property. Now, in Atlanta... <laughs> Especially in, in especially the, back in the day. In the day, it's still now, probably sure. But, it's still yeah. like that, but you don't have that. You don't have agents, and you don't have production companies in town. You know, and so finding a way to get an assignment is really just beating the streets and figuring it out. And there, you know, there was an independent scene. And my first assignment, I pitched myself as a writer uh, on a horror script. I said I can write it. You know, horror is not my thing usually, but I'm like I can write it. And uh, I looked serious enough that that uh, they took me seriously, and so um, you know, I pitched I pitched my wares and, and you know showed them a writing sample. Do you remember uh, what you were thinking before you started, you know, trying to get yourself out there? Like, what what made you think that was the next step, and why why to well, do that? One of the things, and we did this early on with ASG too, is that we knew what we had to do was to actually be produced in order to be taken seriously. So we started doing. Uh, short films, you know, and, 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 and we created a side, like, it doesn't exist anymore, but ASG Productions was sort of the production company arm of the Atlanta Screenwriters Group. And so we dedicated ourselves to getting short films made, to get into festivals, so that the writers of those scripts were now produced writers. And it, that, that elevates you just a little bit right. you know, when you're trying to sell yourself. But Does it also help your craft? Oh, it's, it does. It helps you because a lot of times you don't know what's working. You don't know, you don't know how things go from the page to the screen at all. You, know, you, you may watch you know, documentaries about it. You may read articles about it. But you don't really know if your thing is translating to the screen until you do it. And so that is also an invaluable way to sort of figure out whether what you're writing is actually translating the way you, you think it should. Right. And so, so that's another aspect. But, but we were thinking of just the practical sense of if you got produced credits, then you'll be taken more seriously, right? You might find an agent. <laughs> yeah. But so that was, that was how we did it. And then, again, the, the other part is a writing assignment is if they're paying you to write, then they're likely going to make this movie, <laughs> right? They're rent, yeah. They're likely to do it. <laughs> right. They're and spending they're money spend on it. They're spending money. So... Um, How did you know what to charge? I I, I undercharged because I I knew I needed to get the job. Yeah. So it's like uh, I just charged what I thought would be a decent amount uh, and what they would be willing to pay me. Right. So so that's what we did. Thus why you have an agent who negotiates these things for you. Exactly. But no, so and again, it was invaluable. That first assignment didn't get made at first, um, but it kept me in a relationship with, with the director um, end up writing another script for him that did get made, and that was my first my first experience of having a feature of my screenplays made, and that was uh, called Vicious. It was a horror movie, and shot you know in the woods type of deal, and uh, it got made, and that's where I met some of some of the great people in in town uh, that I still know to this day, like Rob Prowgo and Ted Huckabee, and you know folks of that nature, Brian Bremer. Uh, you know they were all on that that uh that film and uh i got to stay on and uh work on the crew as well as after i wrote the script so which is as we talked about earlier is amazing and invaluable and yeah it's totally totally and then you know just from there and then later that first assignment i got uh with him he made that that later so it got made like three or four years later so it was 
it was good, you know. And this, so I started building a couple of credits. I'm like, I got a short film here. I got, I got a, uh, a feature horror film, and then I decided to make my own feature film, <laughs> you know. And and that that you know just the progression. You got to get more credits. You get more credits, and t- people take you seriously. <laughs> and so, the, and that is that is in the forefront of the mind is mm-hmm. you are working the career angle, not just the craft angle. Right. You're working on that, but you're also working. How do I actually? What, what's your what was and, and we'll, we'll talk about what is maybe a little bit, but like. So you had a what? What's your day job at that that point? Still, are you still at the hotel? Well, at that point, no. I had I had moved finally into a career, and so I started in healthcare with Tricare, and so you know, and I'm still in healthcare uh, to this day, actually. You know, uh, but that was my regular, my first regular job, the nine to five, because uh, we had sort of shuttered one of our record labels, um, and my uh, partners moved down to Florida. Because uh, you know we had we had found some success, but then also uh, tragically, it didn't it didn't amount to much because the, the distributor who owed us tons and tons of money folded, <laughs> and we weren't going to be paid the tons and tons of money. Oh wow! So that's a whole other that's a whole other thing. You know that we had a you know we had a very successful record at one point. Um, it wasn't Reign of Terror, but it was one of the people on our label uh, had a very successful record going and. Um, uh, it was doing really well, and uh, the big distributor who was distributing it uh, folded, went bankrupt, and we were certainly in the back, back of the line to, to right, see to get what they owed us, basically. So what did you learn from that? Again, uh, it's really knowing more. I mean, it really, we couldn't do anything about it. You know, there's nothing we could do about it. They that was the distributor who got us in all the record stores, you know, around the country that sold all those records. But they weren't they weren't strong enough to survive, and so that was just a tragic incident, I guess. And it was part of maybe part of what was happening in the music industry as a whole, right? The independent distributors were dying out, uh, the conglomerations, like. And I think there's only, you know, as much as we talk about record companies don't exist these days, there's still pub- big record entities right big recording entities like Electra, you know universal music group and a couple of other you know warner music group they're still and they were but at the time they were still record companies and they were all getting eaten up by these big companies okay like four right just like the film business is only like six you know big big distributors and so this was just one this independent strong independent distributor just died yeah this, you know and so it, it became like it became a lesson in like well you know, you gotta have a backup plan. <laughs> you gotta have a backup plan because things happen. Things happen. Yeah, let's uh, let's go big picture a little bit. And uh, what advice when you're talking to these kids in college or you know wherever? You know, what advice do you give somebody who says, you know, I want to be a screenwriter? And you know, same same question if they say just filmmaker. I mean, do you, is it different advice? Is this the same? Well, filmmaker, you get to practice more, right? Filmmaker, you get to actually, you know. Depends on what the job is. You get to actually um, reap the rewards, so to speak, of some of your work. Like if you're a cinematographer, uh, you can get a project and you can film it. And, you know, hopefully the editor gets it done and and delivered and and it gets screened somewhere, you know. And you can see it. You can see the effort. Whereas writers is a little more nebulous, right? You you may never have your script read by anyone. You know, that's a possibility. But that's why I always say you got to want to write. It'd be, it'd be cute to be a screenwriter. Yeah, that's a that's 
that's true. It would be cute to be a screenwriter, right? But if you don't really like writing, if you don't like the process, maybe you should think about something else because the validation in screenwriting is probably the lowest of any of the, the other sort of uh, jobs in a film <laughs> in a film career other than maybe a PA, right? Right. But, you know, it's, it's different. So you've got to really want to write, but you've got to really want to hustle too. You can't just be writing because, again, you'll have 10 scripts stacked up you know, and you can read them, <laughs> but if, if someone else doesn't read them, unless you hit the lottery, that's not getting produced, right? Yeah. So I would, I would always say, hey, listen, love the process first, love to write first, because you may never sell a script, you may never get a script made. Secondly, be ready to hustle, because even if you're a great writer, somebody has to know that. And how do people know that? You have to hustle. So that's that's the two things I, I always tell. Them. Uh, that's great advice. Are there books that you recommend people read as well? Um, you know, the, the screenwriting books, I, I'm, I haven't read a new one recently. I, I love um, I love the Screenwriter Bible just to know format, you know, like uh, Dave Trottier's uh, Screenwriter Bible. Uh, I like, it's called uh, the, the Writer's Journey, which is all about... It's a great book. Yeah. It's all Vogler, about, right? Mm-hmm, Vogler, yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's a really good one to understand sort of uh, screenplay, especially uh, story structure. And so uh, I think those two are the ones I'd recommend. But there's there's plenty of how-to books. I mean, screenwriting for dummies, you know, if, if you know, it'll teach you some of the basics. Yeah. So grab it. And, you know, whatever you can find on the shelf. I mean, you can find them at Amazon, but I would recommend going to an actual bookstore. <laughs> Amen to that. There's room, there's room for both, of course. Um, so when you are writing, when you're actively writing a script – what what's your writing schedule like what's your routine like because you're balancing job right and you're married mm-hmm. how do you how do you structure your day your week or your month or how do you how do you plan that well a lot of it deals with um where we are in sort of production these days so it's like uh there's the job you know then there's then there's whatever we're producing you know what stage are we are in pre-production are we in actual production or are we in post-production uh so there's that that you deal with first, and then there's the writing, which, you know, I confess, I'm not writing as much as I want to these days. Um, what usually happens, and I, we usually um, put a put a project to bed and, and get it get it out in the world, and then we write something new. And so uh, that's how Real One works. Me and Eddie uh, usually write the the scripts for Real One Entertainment, and so usually that's how we finally find time to write. Uh, I have my own scripts that I'm trying to write, so I write on those periodically unfortunately you know it's not as you know consistent a schedule as i'd like to have just because there's all these other things there's work you know family you know there's yeah you know there's productions you know? so how do, how do you decide what project to work on at any given three to four month period well it's it's always whatever stage we're on you know production wise in the pipeline you know, that's first, you know, we got to make sure we get that done. Right, but that's the decision. Like, you have to right. decide what's in the pipeline. So how do you do that? Well, also, whatever speaks to you the most, pretty much. It's like, um, you know, when, when Real One wants to do another project, we've been discussing things, you know, we've been discussing ideas, and whichever one speaks to us the most, then, then we pick that one, and then we concentrate on doing that. So we're in, we're in that stage now. We've been talking about, a project we've kind of narrowed one that we really want to do uh, that we want to write so 
we'll be writing that very soon because you know we've got got a movie to get out and, and out into the world and as soon as we're done with that then we'll have some time to write and, so, and, we, and I'm, we're definitely going to get to that i definitely want to talk about that um is this a formalized process or do you say hey you know there's these five ideas that i have and eddie says these are five ideas i have and you it's kind of less, it it less formalized um you know you used to be that that way uh, you know we would have like regular meetings and talk about ideas like that but it's mainly uh second nature now that we you know we just discuss this idea or this idea hey you remember that idea you had two weeks ago i thought about this for that you know and then you know if that idea starts to gain momentum through you know through the discussions then that usually the one that, that, that rises to the top whereas some of the other ideas they fall away You're like oh this was a good idea but nobody's contributed to it you know then you know it's not the one that everyone's going to get behind so when y'all are writing, uh, when you're actually to the writing, do you, first of all, do you outline together? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. And do you, how long will you work on the outline versus then how long will you work on the actual, actual script? Well, that does. Or, or does it change per project? It, would, it, it varies, but, but a lot of times it's hard, it's hard to get to the outline. You know, like the outline will take a long time, but once, once the outline's in place, then the, the, the writing doesn't take that long. You so you all, do you all get to the same room? Um, well, we're in the same room a lot, but a lot of times... Um, a lot of times it's just notes back and forth uh, via email or whatever. But and you're using like a Google Doc or like a Microsoft Word for the Google outline? Google Doc sometimes, yeah. And um, sometimes I, I, they, they're better at technology. Like my whole team, Real One, they're way better at technology than me. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sometimes I, I pull the Google Doc off and then I resend my own and then have to use <laughs> yeah. that as the new Google Doc. Ah, you know? damn it. Martin's emailing us another draft That's, again yeah, and exactly. like, just upload it. A lot of times that happens. Uh, so. Yeah. I, I was surprised. I get, did I get your Google Doc right, or did I? Did yeah, I right? you nailed okay. it, man. All right. I, sometimes I don't get it right. Sometimes I have to pull it down and do my own thing and then resend it. Yeah. But, but yeah, we we do use those kind of tools as well. Um, let's talk about. Let's go to the producing side. We've kind of right. hit screenwriting, and I, we may come back to it as I remember questions I should have asked. Uh, when did your first kind of producing assignment come? When you're producing something not your own, um, and how did that come about? <clears throat> I, I I produced a short film, ironically, for the very first um, no, the very first one we got was um, a short film called Bam. Um, there was a I don't know how we met I don't know how we met um, the actor who had written material for himself. Um, he he basically I I don't know how I met I really don't know how I met him. Yeah. All I know is that. He posted something uh, saying, "Hey, I'm looking for um, producers." It was probably on some some like uh, weird site, like a bulletin board somewhere. Uh, was looking for a production team to, to do the short film he had written, and so he wanted somebody with with hip hop background. Boom, boom, there, I got it, I got <laughs> it. Uh, and you know, somebody who could who could work on a, a on a small short film budget. And uh, he was in L.A., though. Uh, and so I said, hey, man, um, I know you're in L.A., but I could, you know, I could totally put together um, a great crew uh, and a great production for you uh, of, your, of your material, um, but I'm here in Atlanta, so would you consider coming here? Because uh, we've got, you know, I know it's going to be harder in L.A. to find the kind of quality folks for a short film. Uh, that you that you could find here, because at the time, you know, Atlanta wasn't as big as it is these days with uh, 
we, you know, with production. So it's, it was a lot of talented people who weren't doing much at the time. And so I, you know, I pitched that to him. Um, he said, you know what? I've got family in Atlanta, so that's not a bad idea. And so like serendipitously, he, yeah. he basically, um, you know, he, Neil Lewis is his name, uh, and he's an actor. He's been in stuff like uh, Black Lightning, not the TV show, but the, the film that went to Sundance, if you remember that. Okay, I don't. Uh, but. Yeah, he's been in stuff. He's, he's an actor uh, from L.A. He wrote a nice, uh, nice piece of material for himself. Um, we took it on, um, brought in great, you know, a great team, uh, did, a, did a, you know, a plan to shoot. He came in. Luckily, he had family to stay with, so that cut down some of the costs for him. And uh, you know, we just knocked it out, and he was really happy with it. And I was like, you know, we're pretty good. <laughs> so, did you enjoy the process? Absolutely. Uh, first time I got to work with Afemo Omalami, actually, uh, no was in that. Afemo, fantastic actor. He played the judge in this uh, in this sort of uh, kind of a fancy, sort of fantastic look at the world. It was this, um, you know, this this criminal who had done something and he was in front of the judge and had to sort of explain himself kind of and and uh it was again a very heavy piece you know but it was fantastic working with Afemo and Neil and and everybody I, can, I met Onira uh Tare on that and she, we, she later became our leading lady for Step Off you know and so you know we were able to put together a really fantastic team we had a great time on time on budget under budget but but always just just like delivered delivered on everything we said we would do, knocked it out. Uh, Laron was the director. Um, he he really did a great job on the film, and and we just sort of knew that we could do it. It was like this wasn't our stuff. Like when we do our stuff, you know, you're so committed to it, you know, you're gonna get it done, right? This is something completely different. We pull it off, pull it off the street, you know, break it down, make a plan, execute the plan. It came out great. And that's, you know, that's when I knew. You're like, like holy shit, we're this. professionals. I could do this. Yeah, right. exactly. We, we, we even got paid for it. So, yeah. <laughs> so that was great. So that was the first sort of paid producing gig that I had that wasn't my own project. So now, you've, I mean, you've done a ton more films. Well, for, let's talk about Immigration Tango a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, tell me where that idea came from and how, I mean, how that came about and what were the results of that. And Well, um, Immigration Tango was, was I was still a little bit in my acting phase. Uh, I, I wrote a script that I thought I could be in. Uh, kind of a, one of the, ind- it's, it's meant to be sort of the indie films that, that were big in the 90s, you know, the, all, all the, all the, the Sundance darlings, you know, it was just a little. Brothers McMullen. That yeah, type. definitely Brothers McMullen because, you know, Rich, Rich used to make fun of me because I had the, uh, the, um, the Ed, the Ed uh, bangs going for me at, one time <laughs> at, at, at the at the hotel, but um, so it was definitely in that vein. I wrote a, I wrote the script for myself, um, but I was kind of stuck, and so I asked somebody because the the the, um, the plot involved immigration law, right? And so uh, I happened to know an immigration lawyer who was a good friend of mine at the time. And I said, "Hey, you want to help me write the script?" And he's like, "Hell yeah, let's do it." So Robert Lee. Uh, Came on board, then you know we broke it down. My original, my what I had originally was not was not really working. It was the germ of the idea worked, but then we just rewrote the story together and wrote wrote it, uh, and just you know we thought we had a really really great script. It actually did well on sort of 
the contest circuit. We were a finalist in um, Project Greenlight. Um, and we got to the stage. We didn't get to the final stage where we appeared on the show, but we got to the stage where we had to make that video. Like, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we were, well, that, that was cool. And then we won Perfect Pitch. And uh, we won a couple of little, you know, little uh, screenwriting things, you know. So you knew it was a good, you, you know, it was a good script. script and the people were recognizing it. You knew it was a good script, but it didn't really happen for us, you know. Uh, went to L.A., had some meetings about it, you know. Um, the way we had written it. Come on, I got to. Yeah, we could, we might have to have three or four parts of this. So <laughs> tell me briefly, if you can, <laughs> what does a meeting in LA entail? So um, a meeting you get sometimes when you have an agent, or sometimes when you have a hot script, right? So we had one perfect pitch, and so that brought the attention to uh, the Atlanta um, Film Society. Now it's called uh, the Atlanta Film Festival sponsored this, and they were the ones who made our script available to professionals in LA. And we're able to get us meetings to talk about our script and the possibility of maybe making it. So basically, you, is, you meet with someone, you talk about um, your script, answer questions about it, and try to pitch them on the idea of you making the script. And so we were able to do that. Uh, people liked the script a lot, but they didn't see it working commercially. And I'll tell you why, because it, it was an attempt at that time to have an Asian male romantic lead who wasn't a kung fu artist <laughs> who wasn't uh, toting two guns uh, elegantly shooting everybody right? right we were like this is it this is the indie thing that has to happen right this is, this was going to be crazy rich Asians before crazy rich Asians right? I was about to say we're just now getting like <laughs> exactly. Asian leads exactly which is insane but. I would have loved to cast that guy he would have been great but <laughs> That was the holdup at the time. So the, the, the racial dynamics weren't right for Hollywood at that time. So forgot about it for a while. Uh, my friend Jamie Wingler threw me a, uh, we always send each other leads. Like I, I would always send, I used to have like a little short list of, of writers from ASG who whenever I saw uh, someone looking for a screenplay, I would send it out in case someone had a screenplay. So Jamie did the same. So he sent me uh, this notice and somebody had posted somewhere, you know, one I don't know what site it was, you know, but it, somebody was saying they were looking for an immigration-themed drama. I'm like, well, we do have an immigration-themed immigration dramedy, <laughs> so I sent it, and they happened to love it. And so they, you know, they bought the script from us. So they bought the script. Is that your first sale? That was the first full sale, yes, yes. How good did, did that feel? It was so feel? fantastic. It was it was really fantastic because there was a couple things going on at the time. I was trying to rep some films at the uh, American film market, and it wasn't going well. And I was that was really a depressing thing. That's a whole other story. But that right. was a really depressing thing is that I couldn't get anybody to bite on some of these films I was repping, you know, at, at the market. And it was just really becoming a disillusionment. And then I got a call saying, we want to buy your script. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I hate this industry. I hate this industry. I love this industry. Thank you. Like, fantastic. So they bought the script, and I, I always tell the story to, to, the, to the people as a cautionary tale. They loved it so much, they hired a writer to rewrite it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you know at the time that that's kind of what happens? or? Well, I knew it was common, but when someone's telling you, you don't think it's going to happen in a, in a specific situation because what people tell you, and this happens in, in when distributors too, you know, when when they when they buy your film, you know, uh, they love your film so much, 
they talk about it like it's their highest priority. Right. It's the greatest thing I've ever read. It's the best thing ever. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so it's because they want to buy it. Yeah, they want to. Exactly. Right. That's, that's, you know, they're not going to say, you know, we like it. We like it conceptually, but we're going to have somebody take another pass at it. Yeah, they not, don't. They're not going to, you know, you might pause, right? You might not sign. <laughs> so anyway, but I understand it happens. So when it happened, I wasn't, I wasn't floored and, 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 you know, just destroyed by the situation. In fact, I, I stayed very close to the producer. And when the rewrite wasn't great, they came back to me to help punch up before they went to production but the big thing that they did and the reason they rewrote it was it validated all the Hollywood people two years earlier who said it won't work with this dynamic so they switched the dynamics of the races uh, and then made the movie based on that uh, so what did they switch it to well instead of a, um, instead of an Asian male romantic lead uh, the story had had sort of been about um, the female the American female um, who fell in love eventually with the Asian male right and it's a couple swap movie, right? So that was the original spine of the story. That was the main story. The story became, uh, and then like the other couple was an American guy and a Latin woman, right? So that dynamic got completely flipped and inverted. And so it became more the story of the American guy and the Eastern European woman. And they're falling in love. Basically, okay. Instead of the other way. And so the American woman became a little bit in the background, and then the other guy, the other international guy, was Latin instead of Asian. Okay, and so now you didn't have an agent helping you with this. No. Did you try to build on, like, try to get an agent's attention, saying, hey, we've got the sale going on, we need help? You know, I thought about it. It was tough, though, because I was still in, I was still in, yeah, I've had an agent approach me before. Okay. Um, they weren't big or anything. And so that's one of the reasons I didn't sign. But also the other reason I didn't sign is that I was still getting assignments on non-WGA sanctioned stuff. You know yeah. I mean? And so once you get an agent who's you know, signatory to WGA, then you can only do WGA work. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, and most of the work I get is completely independent stuff. You right. know what I mean? And I would not have been able to do any of it if I had an agent, even an agent who wasn't that big of a deal. Right. You know I mean? so no, it, it just like, didn't make sense. Right. It didn't make sense. So even then I was wary of that because I knew I still wanted to do work in Atlanta and independent stuff. So loving the sale, loving getting a, a sale for the first time, but I was not really as anxious to get an agent at that time as I had been before. Have you ever considered? I'm sure you considered. Why, are you, why did you never move to L.A.? Um, well, a lot a lot of reasons. Atlanta is my home. You know, I'm very comfortable in Atlanta. Um, I've always thought about uh, L.A. being um, a great place to be. But at the same time, you know, I think in Atlanta there was more of a chance to sort of stand out, to, you know, do the work here um, and stand out a little more in this community. Like if you're in L.A., you're just one writer and, you know, 400,000 writers are in, in L.A., right? In Atlanta, you know, we've got a good amount of writers, but... Not that many, not 400,000, right? No, and nor do we have generally people who are writing then also can produce and direct and do everything else. So, so like, yeah, I thought, and I always thought Atlanta would, would grow. You know, I, I just thought it would, it would grow a little more organically, independently, uh, eventually, and it sort of didn't. Hollywood just sort of came here and, and, and landed. <laughs> you know, so people say, oh, isn't it great? I'm like, 
Yeah, that's awesome. For crew people. (laughs) (laughs) So one of my line is always, like, yes, I get rejected for a lot better auditions than I used to. Uh, So let's let's talk, you know, fuck it. Let's talk about the industry right now, just a little bit in Atlanta, what's going on. Um, What my impression is, and I I am not in it like you are, Mm -hmm. um, is that great for crews. Oh, yeah. Uh, great for uh, actors at a, to a to a certain point. Yeah, and then if you've yeah. got enough credits, then then maybe not great. Right. But the ideas and the money are not it's, in controlled or coming from here. Is that still is that here. about yeah. right? Exactly. That's exactly right. That's that's a great way to put it. Way to boil it down. Crew crew guys, and even them. There's a there's a glass ceiling on them too. Unfortunately. Oh yeah. Um, but early like young crew people. It's it's a candy land for them because they can get on Marvel sets, you know. They can get on big time movie sets, working as PAs, working as grips, you know, working that level. Now they're not they're not going to be the cinematographer until they really break out, right? They're not going to. You're not getting the Marvel movie cinematography job. That's right. still coming from LA or wherever, you know. Um, so there's still a glass ceiling even for elite crew, but there's plenty of work. And plenty of money to be made, you know, and way more than they would be making if it was all independent films in Atlanta. Like right. with a bunch of independent films, they'd be getting a much lower rate than they're getting now. Yeah. But uh, the actors, they have a lot more chances to get small roles. What they don't get is the opportunity to be really high up on the call sheet. You know, it's it's tough, and I don't know why because a, a, they still bring in people for. Roles that they could cast local. And oh yeah. I don't oh, yeah. know why they. I don't know why they still, you know, don't cast more local because we've got a great, great pool of actors in, in town. So, you know, a few people make, you know, make their way really well. A few people um, are frustrated because they still get the really smaller role, you know, instead of a little bit higher. Um, and then of course, nobody's you know getting the co-star. You know, they're not toe-to-toe with Brad Pitt or whoever you know what I mean yet you know what I mean I mean so that's still a problem for the Atlanta actors who just really put in the work here and then of course the writers and directors you know that's everything's still greenlit in Hollywood so and greenlit means they say put the money in the bank and let's make the movie so that still happens in Hollywood so if you're still in Atlanta you don't really have access to that yet still so that's that's still the problem. If we if we're able to figure out a finance model that can be native to Georgia, then that will happen more often. More writer directors and more producers who have you know bring in and develop good projects can make it just here in Atlanta. But we just need a little bit more of that finance model to be built here, and it just hasn't happened yet. Do you see that? Do you see that eventually happening? Every a lot of people are trying. I mean, there's there's a lot of people who are valiantly trying to get that going. Um, a lot of people think the government's going to help. The government's not really interested in that. Um, they're interested in the tax revenue that, you know, that's coming in with the big, the big productions. Even though they're giving you know good, good tax credits, but, but it's still creating a, a good tax revenue uh, for the state. But they're not interested in putting up like a film fund. I don't think. I mean, it's, it would be a good thing for them to do. It'd be a smart thing for them to do. But I just don't think that they're going to do it. I got gotcha. you. Uh, Tell me about uh, Beauty and the Beholder. Okay. Uh, Beauty and the Beholder, again, is another, like, 
internal project. Uh, one, this one is all real one development. Um, Laron Austin, who's uh, usually our director on our films, uh, he actually wrote the original script. Um, he had he had spent some time in a plastic surgery um, center and had seen some things that sort of you know disturbed him. You know, to put it mildly, uh, and you know, not with you know, the surgery center is all fine, but <laughs> but the fact that people wanted this so badly, and how many people wanted it, and the kind of people that wanted it, it was sort of it jogged his his brain to think of this storyline, uh, and so he wrote the original draft of the script, and then brought it to to uh, myself, Eddie Singleton, and and Benny Swint, uh, the other members of Real One uh, Entertainment Worldwide, and we did more passes on it we did some more rewrites on it uh developed the storyline and you know, just wanted to tell this story about um you know the perception of beauty these days and and we wanted to sort of get the message across you know that everybody needs to find their own beauty right and and be comfortable in finding their own beauty not not rely on what we're seeing externally to be our arbiters of what what is beautiful so that's that's what that that is about and so we got to shoot actually in the plastic surgery center and had real plastic surgery footage uh, as part of the the, the film's uh, storyline yeah it, it, everything was completely i don't know the, the production design production values were, were i mean just looked real you know basically yeah I mean, we, we were which is not always easy to do yeah yeah and we were fortunate to have that particular uh, access uh, to that particular center so um so a project like that which where can i see that um, you can see that Amazon Prime, and it'll be coming to iTunes very soon. I think I don't have the exact date, but early October, it's actually going to be released on iTunes as well. So you may not even be thinking like this, but I'm I'm curious. So when you look at a project like that, and it doesn't have to be that specific mm-hmm. one, how do you judge um, success on that before, <laughs> middle, and and after? Like, what do you? Yeah, that's it. Well, I think, I mean, again, it's, uh, it's all about sort of um, our bottom line is, is the movie going to be available to be seen, right? Will people see it? Will people? That's a... Well, will people see it? That's will a, people, that's be, a, that's a, a, will, will will people be, be able, able to, see to see it? That's the biggest thing for us is like we, we have you know, been able to, we're fortunate enough to do as many films as we have so far and have relationships that we know we can get the movie available to the public. Now, getting people to watch the movie is still a big trick. You know, that's still really hard to figure out well, exactly how that happens. Sure, right? yeah. I mean, The Goldfinch this week, you know, for instance, The Goldfinch is a best-selling novel. Uh, fantastic movie, actually. And yet, it bombed at the box office, and it had 3,000 screens. So, you know, not a, you can't make people watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> not in this country. Yeah, maybe maybe you know, maybe we can <laughs> not yet. Yeah, figure out how we can do that. <laughs> okay, so so that's the first goal. I guess first, first goal, goal is, or just it, completing it, right? But you well, complete, you've done it so many times yeah, now. That's I mean, it's no question we're going to complete it. Right. I mean, is if we start if we start it, we're going to complete it. There's only been a, a very very few projects that that hasn't happened. So yeah, and I don't want to talk about those. Understand? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be for round two. Uh, okay, so complete it. Have it. People or people can view it. Should they want to? Yeah, that's checked on there. And then early before we even start it, we have to be comfortable with the story we're telling, right? And so, Beauty and the Beholder is a good example of a story we felt was worth telling. You know, it was all about, it's all about, you know, questioning what society 
deems as beautiful, right? And so we wanted to tell that story, and we thought the plastic surgery uh, storyline would be a way to sort of express it in, in a way that was, um, you know, powerful. And so that's why we chose that. Uh, we we hoped it would resonate more. Uh, it still has an opportunity. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's it's been a release for a few months now on Amazon Prime. Uh, we hope when it platforms out to iTunes, it'll get more followers. It's also available, like, on Tubi and some free platforms, like Google Play even. Uh, it's available on a lot of platforms now, but we're still trying to platforming out into more. Right, and I'll be linking to uh, to these so you guys can just but click yeah, on that I mean, and find it. We think it's a story worth telling. Uh, we hope we did a decent job with it. I mean, I think production value-wise we did. Sometimes, you know, you don't know how it's, you know, how the performances and everything are going to resonate with people, uh, whether they can really identify with it. And that, that, that becomes the question as a filmmaker is like, your take on it, you're, you're you know, you're okay with your take on it, but does the audience see it and, and, and does it affect them the same way? Yeah. Well, I mean, with any work of art, no matter what you created, then once it's out there, it's really, it's, it's not yours anymore. Right. It's totally, you know, it's yeah. just, everybody's going to, a thousand different people will get a thousand different things from watching the exact same thing. And it's hard not to, you know, not to want them to get it exactly the way you wanted them to get it. Right. But, but if you do that, it. then you dumb it down so much yeah, yeah. to where that like nobody wants to watch it. Yeah. 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 So. It's a, it's a line. Um, tell me about Full Count. Okay, Full Count is a again a film that I was actually hired to produce. Um, so how did this happen? Um, Robert Egar, Eager, sorry, uh, he has been um, he had been a member of the Atlanta Screenwriters Group for many years. Um, kind of in the background, he you know he was a regular for a while. Um, he and I he had actually hired me to produce a short film for him several years ago too another one of my producer gigs. Uh, so again, same thing with BAM. We put together a really great team, uh, very solid uh, team and together and, and did, did his short film. Um, it won a couple of awards uh, at film festivals here and there. Really short film called The Ticket. Uh, Chris Burns is, is the lead in that film. And, um, you know, again, great crew consisting of my real one guys and my cougar guys, you know, put together a really solid group made that film he, he was happy with that um didn't hear from him for a little while um and then a couple years ago um he started talking about this feature he wanted to do and he asked my advice on it and i put together a plan for it um we talked about it for maybe two years before he decided it was going to be a go so uh two years we talked about doing it and you know he asked a lot of questions about the process and everything else and so um finally he was ready to go and we you know we put the plan together and and put on a great production got some great actors and and, and great crew in into the film and um now that it's finished uh vertical entertainment picked it up and it's going to be you know released october 25th on demand everywhere and also select theaters nationwide uh so new york la houston dallas atlanta's going to have several theaters um, That's great. Yeah, a couple of other. I'm blanking on. We just got the list yesterday, uh, so I'm, I'm blanking on some of the other cities that it's playing. But That's okay. You can send it to me, and we'll put them in okay, the show notes. Sure, sure. But yeah, so it's a faith-based film. Uh, Robert, you know, had had the script for many years and has always wanted to do this this film, and um, he put a lot of heart into it. And you know, we got a lot of great energy from all of our actors. And again. Um, you know, we're really excited about it because this is actually the biggest release we've had because the on-demand 
when I say it's going to be available everywhere, it will be any on-demand outlet that you can think of, it's going to be there. So Xfinity, you know, any cable you know, on-demand, it's probably going to be on your airplane flights, you know, all available. So there's no excuse not to see this one. <laughs> so how did it get that great distribution? Like, how did that happen? Well, I think I think the um, you know the level of the level of production is a little bit higher than than what we've done in the past. Uh, sort of the the we have a little bit more name talent in the cast. Uh, we've got two Emmy winners, uh, two daytime Emmy winners, Natalia Livingston and also Rick Hurst. Uh, daytime Emmys, man. So when we were just starting in Violet, my theater company, we met with this guy who does a lot. He produces the Drama Desk Awards and a lot of other things. But mm-hmm. you know, we asked you know general advice and guidance. He was like. Cast soap opera stars. They are their fans are rabid. They will go see whatever they do, and the and it'll help you. You'll raise money and all that kind of stuff. Well, the, the soap opera sites have been have been giving us notices for ever since we started production. You know, once they knew that that those two were part of the the the, the cast, and then uh, Jason London, who is one of, in in one of my favorite uh, directors' movies, uh, Days and Confused, uh, we found him. You know, we found him uh, to be in the film as well, and so brought him in. And so those, I think, those names helped elevate the project to where uh, a distribution company was was willing to to take a chance on a, a wide release like this. I mean, again, it's not wide, like it's not wide, like you know, uh, whatever. But it's it, it's definitely a wider release than than ordinarily for independent films. Yeah, it's a, it's a victory. It's yeah. a victory all before it's come out. The fact that it, that it has that. Yeah. Thing. So we're really excited about it. I mean, and, you know, and again, w- the reason we're really excited about it is because we did the same thing we do on all our other movies. We create this family, and this family goes through this journey and creates something that everyone can be proud of. And that's that's really what it's about every time. And again, this is just means that more people get to see it, you know, early on, you know. Right. And so that's that's why we're really excited. So for your real one projects. Where do y'all raise money? Uh, well, how does how does that work? Because there are legal things oh, yeah, you yeah. can and cannot do, correct? A lot of a lot of real one is self financed. So what what originally uh, for our biggest like our biggest success? Um, well, we built we built a little bit of success off our documentary called Beatmakers. Um, so that that was you know easy to finance. It was really you know low no budget type of uh, documentary that we did. Then when we followed that up with the narrative version of basically Beatmakers, it was we told a narrative story based on our experience with meeting all the um, the bedroom DJs and and, and, and hip hop producers that we chronicled in Beatmakers. Um, we had raised that money from writing assignments. Uh, again, Eddie and I did did a lot of writing assignments uh, for um, sort of sub Hollywood. Like they were they were all LA based, but they were not. The big studio pictures. Uh, we would do, um, you know, writing assignments that never panned out. We would do rewrites a lot um, mm-hmm. that that were uncredited, you know. Um, but they earned us enough money to build to the point of us being able to finance our movie. At first, it was called Battle. And later, when Lionsgate picked it up, it got to be renamed to Step Off. So that was all self-financed. And then what we've done ever since is used use the money from the previous film to finance this, the next film. Put it back into it. Exactly. So that's what we've just been sort of redoing each each film. Uh, with Beauty and the Beholder, we did that to an extent, but we also did get another investor in Total Momentum Films who invested in Beauty and the Beholder as well. But at the same time, 
the idea is that we did, you know, we did the self-financing, and then we used that revenue to finance the next film and the next film. So somebody is going to hire you guys as producer. Would you give just a little bit of a, a brief explanation of exactly what that entails? Because there's different forms of producing. Sure. And kind of what just if people are out there and they want to give you money and want to make a movie, which they totally should. Totally, yeah. What, uh, what are they getting for their money? Well, basically, you know, we start out from like a line producing, uh, a line producing uh, background. It's like we learn one of the people who would, who would hire well, Let's us. define that for folks. Well, line producer is the one who sort of does – does the scheduling and the budgeting of each, you know, each thing, you know, uh, that goes into the movie. The right? nitty damn gritty, right? Right, the nitty gritty. So we got our background from, um, from, um, oh man, I can't believe I'm gonna blank on our guy's name. Unbelievable. We had been getting assignments from, um, from, oh man, Mister Awesome Person. Yeah. Oh man, he's the best. He's a Hollywood vet. He used to, oh man. I'm blanking on his name at the moment. I can't believe it. Anyway, he hired us a lot as writers. But at the same time, he taught us how to break down scripts. He taught us the scheduling you know, aspect of it. Uh, he, he was a line producer for many years. He's a producer on You Got Served. Uh, you know, and, he, and he basically was a mentor to us in that sense of teaching us sort of the, the nitty-gritty process of that's amazing. And, and, you know, we had already been producing. You know, we had been producing short films, but this really gave us the ammunition to dig into a feature. I would even produced a feature before, too. But, but this was like real deal how you do it. Right. right. This is exactly how you do it. How did so, you all end up working with him? Um, well, he, he had actually hired Eddie to write, uh, to do an assignment. Okay. He had actually optioned um, scripts from Eddie that, that didn't get made. He really, you know, he really... Um, push for them to get made but they didn't happen uh but um we had written a script that was on became development hell uh it was on track to be produced uh new line was at new line and um we had done a page one rewrite on a on a script it was a dance movie and i think it's i think it's still a terrific dance movie honestly you know new line was kind of you know they missed the boat on it in my opinion um but it ultimately didn't pan out, as most projects in Hollywood don't pan out. I mean, that, that's the other thing that people don't get, is that most projects, even when people have been paid to write, you know, they don't pan out. Because there's so much money involved in those kind of productions that it just, you know, didn't, didn't help. Luckily for us, we did get paid. You know, it's part of what built Step Off, you know, and, and, and went, went on from there. But, um, yeah, uh, Cassius. Cassius Weathersby. So, All right. Great great man uh again tons and tons of years of experience in hollywood he used to be on the production of i spy you know and producer of dc cab i mean totally like back in the day you know big time so he knew the ins and outs of how to do it all um that's invaluable right yeah totally and he shared his knowledge because we you know we were coming through for him on these rewrites and and ghostwriting things that we had to do that were urgent, you know, and, and one of the things that Eddie and I do is we can write fast when it's a deadline. Involved, <laughs> yeah, you know? it's a great skill to have. So that's that's what got us, kept the relationship going, and he taught us all this all this great, valuable stuff that really gave us the ammunition that we knew what we were doing. So by the time we got to step off and running, our, you know, using our own our own money to make the movie, um, 
we were prepared and you know we run things really tight we run a tight ship as as like you you wouldn't notice because when you come on set eddie's hugging everybody and taking pictures and eddie just looks like he's having a party right but the reason he looks like that is because we're putting the work in and getting it all set so there's not going to be a problem. So we can all have fun on the set, and all the crew can have fun on the set, and all the cast can have fun on the set. Fix it in pre. Exactly. So we learned that model, and we've taken it. And so if someone was looking to you know, invest in a movie, they had a movie they wanted to make, they would be smart to come to us because, A, we've got the line producing background to schedule the heck out of it, to budget the heck out of it, and get it in a position to where you know, it needs to be pre-production-wise. Then... We also have had track record. We haven't produced a film that hasn't been released. That hasn't that hasn't happened, you know, to us yet. You know, we we have been able to find dis- distribution for almost every project we've been involved with. There's still pending projects that that haven't yet, but we will find a distribution for them. And so that's the second thing is that if you come if you hire us that film will be seen or will be a available to be to seen, be seen. <laughs> right. and not just on a link on your website exactly it won't yeah exactly yeah. it won't be your home you know your home page website and or youtube it will be out there on a on a on a platform that people actually watch movies on yeah i know i don't think people uh, the two things you were saying i don't think people realize one how how often projects that seem like they're going to be amazing and and happen and how they just quickly just go away. Oh, yeah. Now, personalities, money, like a, a million different reasons. Definitely, definitely. And the other thing I think, I, in fact, I know people don't understand this. It is how hard it is to make even a shitty film. Oh, it's... Like, it's... It's nearly impossible. <laughs> it's to, nearly impossible to make a bad movie. I know. So to make a good one, like, I, I just... There's so much work that goes in, in involved in it. So what, what keeps you going with it? Is it just the camaraderie? Is there... Because it's it is, it's, I mean it's brutal, especially again totally. holding down a full time job yeah, yeah. and being totally, married. Totally, it you know it it is it is just the satisfaction of, of you know accomplishing something. My favorite time, and I always I always say this, uh, my favorite day of of the production uh, of the production process uh, is the cast and crew screening. And like we know, you know we're gonna get released and all that's super important and you know I'm excited we're gonna have a premiere you know red carpet premiere for for full count soon too and um, that's all great but the best one is when it's the family getting to watch what they did and so I love that day more than anything right we go and we always do it in a theater we've had a really great great success at making sure our cast and crew gets to watch their movie in a movie theater on the big screen right and so we get that going and um that's that's the best because everybody you know we value everybody who works with us you know so much that they don't understand as much time as we tell them they don't understand how much we value them and so this is the like the small way we can give back is like great night at the movies you know reunite the gang you know and watch what you did and hope i hope that they're proud of what they've done you know what i mean and that's the thing it's like if they like it then i'm i'm fine you know it you know it'll be available for other people to see but as long as they like what they did then i'm happy if everything turned out amazing whatever that means i don't even know exactly what i mean for that but i guess like if all your moves are right and five years from now what are you doing 
uh, making movies. I'm making movies. I'm making more movies. And one of the one of the only things that I that I feel like uh, I'm not I'm not a success at is is being able to work faster. You know, we make we've made a lot of movies, but we're also we've been around a while. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like we need to be making more movies every year. We we you know this we, like I've got three releases within it's going to end up being within about 13 14 months right that i've been a producer on which is kind of cool yeah but very. we don't have anything that has been in production this year so that means it'll be a little while before the next thing comes out and so it needs to come quicker and that's the one thing that i'll say i wish i could figure out a way to work faster on these things you know and that's that's the only drawback uh but if i was able to like if if everything happens like an amazing success, then I'll just be making movies and I'll just be making more of them. That's all. And I'll get to finally make, you know, films of people I've always wanted to make their films. Like I'll get to make a Richard Edgerson movie. I'll get to make a Robert Lee movie. You know what I mean? I'll get to produce those, you know, right. and find the right director or the right cast to be in their films, you know? And, you know, it's just, that's been my goal for a while now is that get into a position where I just decide which movies we're going to make. You know, and, and make them, you know, and then just go for it. How has the uh, the changing of the guard with gatekeepers, uh, as far as the fact that, you know, YouTube and Vimeo are out there, how has that changed what y'all are doing or or has it? Because I, I feel like it might, n- I don't know that it's, it is. Yeah, it, it you know, it's fun. It's funny. We're, we're kind of dinosaurs because we're sort of still back in the, um, you know, independent, you know, narrative feature phase, right? Like we, we should probably think about doing web content specifically, you know, and, and figuring out how to do that because, you know, there's something to be said for that world and, and the kind of attention you could get from, you know, web content. Uh, I'd love to get into television. I do have television ideas that, I, that I'd like to sort of see progress. Um, and I know some people who are starting to be successful in television. I mean, uh, uh, your friend and mine, Brian, um, you know he's doing really well now in television. Uh, uh, Jamie Giddens, who used to come to ASG, uh, uh, he's got his own. He's a show creator, you know, uh, of soap opera. Uh, e. Roger Mitchell, who uh, from our from our film, and uh, is in Ambitions, you know. And those guys are really doing well now in television. Yeah, I'd love to get into television as well. Um, I just don't know which project that'll be yet. But we still love narrative features, so we still just do it. Because we're dinosaurs, you know, we yeah. just keep doing it because we like going to the movies and we like watching features. So that's that's kind of where we still are. And again, told you I'm stubborn. I, I like that about you. All right, so we are winding down. You have been very generous with your time, but I do want to. I got these perennial questions that okay. I usually sure, ask. Yeah. So I'm just going to throw these at you rapid fire, but your answers do not need to be rapid fire. Okay. Uh, is there a bookstore that you love or loved? Um. I love all bookstores. Um, I wish there were more. Um, Borders is gone, unfortunately. Uh, I still go to Barnes and Noble uh, and, and lounge and, and, watch, and watch, but I don't have, I don't have a f- absolute favorite bookstore. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, let's say there's a fire in your house. Uh, family, pets are safe. Yeah. What three material objects do you take with you? And in this scenario, yes, you can grab your refrigerator with your hand and take it out <laughs> well uh I, I could probably buy more food so i would yeah. <laughs> I, it could I, be a very special refrigerator <laughs> exactly i would grab my laptop 
I would grab some of my vinyl, my records that were personally owned by us, like Reign of Terror records. I would buy, I would grab those because they won't exist anymore <laughs> pretty soon. And um, and probably probably a hat, probably one of my hats. All right, you are yeah, you all you do have hats often. Uh, let's see here. What would other people pay, say that your superpower is? This is other people, and then they're talking about you. And then would you would you would you agree with them? Well, I, I kind of think I kind of think I've been talking about it a little bit. I think people would admit that I'm a really stubborn person. <laughs> and, okay, and this is not something that you that is that is a secret from other people. Well, people know I'm persistent, right? I mean, right, I never yeah. let I never let something fall away, you know, unless I want it to, right? So I'm gonna be at you, like you know, if if I if we're supposed to get together and have a meal, I'm going to bug you until we do, right? <laughs> and so people know that. And some, some people might think that's not a good trait. But again, it served me well in being able to stay doing something that I really wanted to do. That makes sense. Uh, do you have a favorite failure? Something you might have been able to build from or learn from? Um, wow. I think uh, one of my favorite failures uh, is is um, concert I did at Georgia Tech. Uh, Tell me. We, um, oh, and, and again, it was, again, it's called Reign of Terror Luck. Uh, Eddie, Eddie and I <laughs> yeah. talk about it. Because, you know, we've had so many brushes with, like, we've had so many brushes with what we thought was going to be wild, wild success. Um, we put on a show uh, in a January once, a, a big hip-hop show. Uh, Reign of Terror got to be the headliner because I had, I had, Connections at Georgia Tech. So, <laughs> yeah. so we put on a great hip hop show. We had um, Y'all So Crazy, which later they got signed and had a deal. Uh, we had um, KIN, which was an alternative hip hop group that had a big following at the time. We put a great show together. Um, Happened to Snow, which is not as rare as it used to be, but at the time it was a little bit rare yeah. for snow in Atlanta. To, and it snowed, and we had. For this fantastic lineup, we had 15 people in the audience. But we had a marvelous time doing the show. Yeah. Doing the show was awesome. Uh, But it was a failure by all accounts because (laughs) it snowed and nobody could get get there to to the campus. And so 15 people enjoyed the exploits of Reign of Terror, (laughs) and um, Tribal Science, you know, which was which was friends of ours, too. But it was a great show other than the turnout. I gotcha. Um, Do you have a favorite investment And this? You know, it doesn't have to be financial or you buy money for a class. It could be. Whatever or time, yeah, yeah. You know, it could be could be anything. Um, I think one of my, my one of my best investments was um, traveling to Las Vegas Screenwriting Expo. Um, it was early on, but I mean, we were really green in screenwriting. But I said, I'm going to go to one of these conferences, you know, and uh, so paid a lot of money. I was not I was not very well off at the time, um, and went to this screenwriting conference for three days and learned a ton, learned a ton. And it even had a little pitch session where I was able to pitch one of my scripts. And Do you remember some of the things you learned? Well, I, I learned about high concept, right? I, le- I learned a lot. I mean, I had heard the term high concept, but I really learned what it was. 
You know, there was a great, Robert Kosberg actually gave a speech uh, on it. And I figured it out. Oh, this is what they're talking about. This is high concept, right? So say people a trip to Vegas, what is, what is it? Huh? I said say people a trip to Vegas. Tell, tell, <laughs> well, tell, tell us what it is. Because not everybody listens to this is, is artsy at all. Sure. Well, high concept is that big idea, right? The big, the big Hollywood movies are the big idea, right? Inception, right? It's a huge idea about can you plant an idea in someone's head? You know, and it's this huge, huge idea that is worthy of a $100 million budget, right? Right. So, like, uh, an asteroid is going gonna, is gonna to destroy Earth and miners have to <laughs> blow it up, right? Yeah. Like, oil miners have to blow it up, right? That's a high concept, right? Because it's such a big idea, right? Right. The Earth's going to be destroyed by an asteroid, but oil miners might be able to save the world. <laughs> High concept. I, so, prefer, I prefer Deep Impact of those two movies myself. But. Yeah, but Deep Impact, see, didn't save the world. <laughs> no. It, it wasn't high concept. It didn't do nearly as well. That's why Armageddon didn't do nearly as well. But that's the point. It's yeah. high con- I finally figured out, like, oh, that's what they mean by high concept. I got you. Do you so, remember anything else you might have learned, too? Well, and then I learned how to pitch. And I, and I, got, I got a great affirmation, too. It's because when I pitched, I pitched to Samuel Goldwyn Pictures. And the, uh, and the development person there actually asked for my script. No shit. And I got a read from Samuel Goldwyn. And they actually, after they read it, and again, this is that same script that, that I told you about before that made me feel like I might be okay, right? Right. It's called Present Perfect. They liked the script enough that they said, if you have any anything new, send it. And so I had an open door to send material to them after that. And so that was sort of affirmation. And so if I hadn't invested in that, I wouldn't have gotten sort of a real Hollywood check mark. Say, yeah, you're not you're not that bad as a writer. That's great. That's absolutely great. Uh, what's your ideal no work Saturday? Uh, no work Saturday would be if you have to throw some work in there, you can. But you know, no, no. I, I, I first of all, I'm going to do something related to to film stuff. So we're going to do something. But I'd love to go to a game. Love to go to like a football game, maybe. Uh, love to eat something great. And I'd love to see a movie. So if I could fit those three things, which would be tough, tough to do on a Saturday, especially the time investment on a, on a game. Yeah, need, a noon, need a noon tech game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> noon tech game where they're not going to lose the Citadel. But <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up. Go dogs. But, but yes, like a noon tech game, great dinner, and then a fantastic movie. And that'd be perfect no work day. All right. I like that. Uh, what purchase of $100 or less has recently positively and impacted your life? Uh, Thank you, Tim Ferriss, for the question. Yeah, that's that's my my newest Falcons jersey. Uh, I, I'm i a hoarder of Falcons jerseys. <laughs> I think I have seven number sevens and in total about 15 Falcons jerseys. Uh, and I just got Julio Jones. And I finally I got the Julio Jones Color Rush jersey. Because the Color Rush jerseys are so comfortable. Is Color Rush a brand, a style? What is no, Color Rush? It, a couple years ago, uh, NFL introduced Color Rush, right, where they had this special jersey for all the teams. And Atlanta's is just this red, this red thing, you know, with – it's really plain. And I really at first didn't think I would like it. But Mike Freeman and I went to the game. He actually got us tickets to the Saints game. And, of course, we beat the Saints that night. It was when Dion got the interception at the end. I don't know oh, wow, I do Deion remember Jones. that. And the Color Rush jerseys, they look pretty damn good. I was like, these are not bad. But I got one, and the material is so light. So it's like 
you're wearing a jersey, but it's not heavy like a jersey, so it feels really great. All right, outstanding. Uh, what would be your last meal? Uh, last meal, there's so many things. I, I would probably break it down to, as an appetizer, want something good and fried. Frying, good frying green tomatoes would be nice. Okay. Maybe some tempura, something like that. Uh, steak, got to be a ribeye. It's got to be a ribeye and, and thin cut, not super thick. Okay. I like thin cut. What temperature? Ribeyes, medium. Okay. And then some hand cut fries of some sort that are great. I mean, can't, they can't <laughs> yeah. just be, like, people make people make fries and some of them are just passable. They're okay. Right. I mean, no fries are bad, but need to be great hand cut fries okay. to go with the steak. And then, you know, milkshake or icy or something like that would be would be fantastic or an old fashioned cherry limeade. Oh, wow. Good call. Uh, okay, so this may take us a bit, uh, and we may have already covered some of this also, but what bad advice do you hear be given to potential filmmakers or screenwriters or actors or anybody who wants to see if they can make a go at the... Uh... Bad advice? I think um, I think this, this um, the advice that you have to have an a- as a screenwriter, advice that you have to have an agent to ever get something done is, is absolutely false. You know, so don't believe it because I think people get hung up on that. They want to figure out how to find an agent before they've even written a script, right? Which is completely idiotic. You know, an agent is not going to want you until you have something they want to sell first. So you got to be a good writer first. But you're going to, a lot of people let it hold them back that they're not in position. I don't have an agent, so how am I ever going to be successful? Well, guess what? Write first <laughs> and worry about the rest later. So I think that's, that's for a writer. It's for a filmmaker. You know, I think, I think people sometimes let, not failure, but disappointment impact their enthusiasm. And I think that's the wrong way to go. Uh, I made some bad shorts, some bad features, some bad film stuff. And I said, guess what? Just like a very classic line in um, what's the... What's the um, movie with Johnny Depp? What's Ed Wood? Hmm. Ed Wood says on the phone, after he's been told he's made the worst, he's probably the worst movie he's ever seen, guess what he said? He said, next time I'll do better. And that is perfect. Do it. Don't be discouraged. If you really want to do it, keep doing it. You will get better. We're going to leave it right there. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story Podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, where you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right here.